Welcome to the Progress City Radio Hour. My name is Michael Crawford. With me, as always, especially this hot summer month of July, my brother Jeff. How are things, Jeff? I'm doing good. I uh, have been, you know, only lightly scarred by the fireworks that have gone off already. Uh, But I'm trying to light a few more uh, for this. Very nice. Very nice. You know, it's all about all about the fireworks, all about the pageantry, the big display. So, uh, yeah, we're we're going big in our 4th of July celebration, even though you may have already celebrated 4th of July wherever you are, or you may not even be listening to this in July at all. But uh, it's 4th of July here in Progress City. So we are going to have a little bit of a patriotic celebration. Jeff, what are we going to be talking about? Well, we are going to be talking about a big year in the Walt Disney World history, especially in regards to our 50th anniversary celebration of Walt Disney World. 1976, the Bicentennial. We're going to be looking at some of the things that happened that year in regards to a big celebration in our country. That's right. Uh, We're also going to be talking about a show that many of us probably associate closely with America because that's what this show is all about. Uh, It's the American Adventure at Epcot. But we're going to be talking about the very, very early years of development when it wasn't even called the American Adventure and they were still kind of trying to figure out what it was going to be. Uh, Also, we have, uh, you know, uh, this, this... you know, I should have let off with this. This is kind of the, our one-year celebration of the revived Progress City Radio Hour. Uh, last year, we started off in July with a 4th of July show. We're back again. We've made it a year. This is our... What episode is this? Is this like our 30th episode, something like that? 30th episode, 27th of the year, Michael. 27 episodes in one year, folks. That's the kind of deal you're only going to get at Progress City. That, and, you know, thanks to our Patreon subscribers for making it possible. That's right. But, uh, yeah, tw- who knew from three in a decade to 27 in one year? That is pretty wild. So uh, this is kind of a 4th of July celebration, kind of a year celebration. Uh, but, you know, a year ago, we discussed a parade that took place in 1988 for the 4th of July at Walt Disney World. Uh, We've got something a little different this time, Jeff. What is it? We're going to look at Disney's Great American Celebration from 1991 and talk about this bloated special in a bloated fashion. (laughs) So uh, we're going to go into detail about all about that, which is kind of an interesting kind of uh, sample of where Disney was at that time. Yeah, uh, like with any good 4th of July celebration, you should wind up a little bloated at the end. Uh, so we're celebrating that bloat with a right. uh, bloated discussion of a bloated special. So we've got all that coming up for you. It's very excited. Um, you know, again, thank you. thanks to everyone who's listened in this last year and kind of encouraged us. Jeff, you have any th- thoughts on us wrapping up a year of podcasting? It's been great. I'm so happy. We talked about bringing it back. I mean, even a couple of years after we did the first, and it took us 10 years in a pandemic, but uh, it's so much fun to do this and hear from all of you. 
Uh, I would, you know, we usually save this stuff from the end, but I would say if you enjoy this podcast and you want to celebrate it with us, please leave us a review on your podcast platform. You know, if it's Apple, do that. If it's something else, do that. A lot of you are Apple listeners. So uh, if you could do it in the iTunes store, that'd be great. And we really do appreciate it. But uh, it's been fun to hear from the people we've heard from. And uh, we have a lot more to come. A lot of exciting things to end out this year. We have other ideas for future years after this 50th anniversary special is complete. So, um, you know. Good ideas never die here at Progress City. <laughs> We're just always coming up with more of them. So thanks for listening. Most Absolutely. All. Thank you so much. And yeah, we've got lots lots to come. Uh, one thing I do want to get in a quick plug for at the top of the episode is something very new, le- about a week old, if even that. Uh, we've gotten on the Instagram uh, because the kids, the kids seem to love the Instagram. And uh, so... You know, for a long time, I've been posting stuff on Twitter and pictures and stuff. But, you know, when you post on Twitter, it just kind of goes down uh, the memory hole and evaporates and gets lost in with all the other silliness. And you can't really find the pictures unless you scroll back. And so I thought Instagram would be a good way to post photos and artwork and stuff from history and uh, just make it a little more easier to find. So I've been doing that, doing some every day of Think historical things of note uh, for that day. Uh, you can find it at Instagram.com slash Progress City USA uh, on there and uh, check it out. I It provides me more space to post a message than Twitter does, but stuff that maybe doesn't warrant like a blog post. So just a little interesting historical fact. So check it out. Instagram.com slash Progress City USA. All right, so, uh, you know, it's the 4th of July. Let's get ready. Got to light that candle, get those fireworks off the ground. Uh, Let's get started. United States of America. From the beginning, discovery, contribution, achievements, to this very moment of the 200-year celebration of our independence. God bless America. May liberty's flaming torch and our great symbols of freedom shine like beacons and inspire all mankind to live together in peace and harmony. One of the landmark events in Walt Disney World's first decade was the celebration of the Bicentennial of the United States in 1976. This is a midpoint of a busy decade that included the opening of the Walt Disney World Resort and completion of the Phase 1 build-out and would pivot to the development of Lake Buena Vista and the design of Epcot Center. For the Walt Disney Company, President Card Walker would call 1976 the year of transition for the company, 
saying it was, quote, a year in which an immense effort was concentrated on planning for future projects, which will challenge the company's creative leadership well into the 1980s. How right he was, Michael. Yeah, this was, there had a lot of irons in the fire back then. <laughs> That's right. Uh, not only was Disney working on the Walt Disney World property, but it was well underway with the Tokyo Bay project that would become Tokyo Disneyland. So, yes. New frontiers for Disney that would mm -hmm. uh, eventually bring in new management, unfortunately. Or fortunately, exactly. I guess. Yeah, depending. But the bicentennial was a time for a rush of patriotism and supposed renewal in the United States, fresh from the end of a Vietnam War just one year prior and facing an uncertain time domestically. It happened at an interesting time of decline in America, and it was hoped it would reinvigorate and recenter the country. Now, this was this loomed large over our childhood because it—I mean—it was one year before you were born and a couple before I was born, so it was not that far in the past. Yeah, grew up really in the wake of it, and uh, finding bicentennial quarters in <laughs> change was very exciting. Uh, see a lot of things at the secondhand shop from uh, the bicentennial flair. And yeah, just the general m malaise of the 1970s. <laughs> right. uh, so large. Growing up in the recovery from that, uh, uh, just a lot. A lot of the atmosphere of the late 70s hung over our childhood. That's true. Uh, plans for the country's celebration of the bicentennial began ten years prior, as Lyndon Johnson and Congress created the American Revolution Bicentennial Commission on July 4th, 1966. Ideas ran the gamut from getting both Summer and Winter Olympics for the United States in 1976 to having a World's Fair Expo 76 somewhere in the United States. Uh, neither of these would come to pass. But, Bummer. I know. But those would have been cool things. I know. Uh, for the Expo, Philadelphia, Washington, Miami, and Boston were all in the running, and in this, there were, could never be agreement on who would have the World's Fair. And the idea fell apart and became much less centralized. Now, Boston's plan, I have to mention, because it started in 1963 and was an unreal billion-dollar vision for curing Boston's urban ills. A city built on piers out in the water intended to add 690 acres and housing for 45,000 with mass transit and educational hubs, geodesic domes, and people movers called star cars included. Oh. It would have been incredible. <laughs> I've never heard of that. That's <laughs> nuts. Yeah, they had, I don't remember how many people movers they ordered or were going to order, but it was in the hundreds. It was crazy. Wow. But at least we got the Freedom Train, uh, the world's first Epcot Pavilion on wheels. Uh, I'm kind of obsessed with the Freedom Train. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Get on board that Freedom Train. <laughs> All sorts of uh, all sorts of things to see on that train. I know you could see Hank Aaron's home run bat. You could see uh, all kinds of things. Uh, so, like everything in the late 1960s and early 1970s, things were a mess, and we were back to the drawing board. Enter the Walt Disney Company, who was ready to celebrate. In a 1974 speech to the Orlando Chamber of Commerce Orange Juice Club, Michael. I wonder if that's still a thing. I want to join that club. <laughs> uh, Chairman Don Tatum, speaking of the Orange Juice Club, by the way, announced that the Grand Parade, America on Parade, would debut in 1975, running from June of that year through September of 1976. 
In addition, Tatum stated there would be a CBS special with Debbie Reynolds to celebrate the opening, as well as a 150,000-mile world tour for the Walt Disney World ambassador Susie O'Hara to, quote, spread the Florida story and the Walt Disney World story, unquote. <laughs> uh, I hate we missed out on the Debbie Reynolds special. That would be much better than the terrifying Red Skelton special we ended up getting. But. Yeah, that is a huge downgrade. A <laughs> yes. Debbie Reynolds Disney special would be amazing. Dang, come on. In her peak moxie. Yes. Uh, so on February 18th, 1975, Disney announced more bicentennial plans. And of all places, the State Department in Washington, D.C., uh, by now, Chairman Don Tatum and Entertainment VP Bob Yanni had more details about America on Parade, announcing that, quote, we have created a new family of Disney characters who are larger than life on a scale that lets people see them through the eyes of children, according to Yanni. Uh, these eight-foot-tall characters, of which there were 150 reportedly, still calls horror to the children who experience them. I mean, if they make adults see them through the eyes of children, what do they do to the children? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, seeing things through the eyes of the children is overrated, I think, in general. <laughs> yes, yes. Because um, when you're a kid, stuff is weird and kind of scary. So I don't know why you'd want to recreate that. But they sure did recreate it very effectively. And, yeah, these kind of loom large in... In mythos and literally, I wish Bobiani was still around because I would love to pick his brain about what was going on with this. I know. Uh, Yanni in the presentation was swift to mention the Sadie Mae, the band organ that had been purchased to make the music to the parade, along with the Moog synthesizer. Now, we had a chance to talk to Don Dorsey about the Sadie Mae and his experience putting together the music for this parade in episode 11. Here's what Don had to say. So this is a really interesting music to this parade. How did this conceit of recording a band organ with a with a synthesizer come come about? Bob was fascinated with mechanical instruments. And I guess that the the band organ mechanical instrument sound appealed to him in the context of early America. And the synthesizer appealed to him in the context of then current America. And so the conceit was to blend the two and create a new type of sound that spoke to the early country and the current country. So that was my gig, was to figure out how to take the band organ and kind of find sounds that weren't too electronic freaky but that helped sort of spice up the band organ into something that people hadn't really heard before yeah so you record the they recorded the sadie may was the name of this band organ and my brother and i talked about just on the uh, last episode that they had been planning a show at fort wilderness that was going to involve the sadie may were you aware of that at the time okay right after america on parade and I had been there for, I think this was even before the parade concluded, Bob had been so enamored with Sadie Mae and the sound um, that he made a deal with the gentleman that owned Sadie Mae and an entire museum full of these instruments. Hmm. That was Paul Eakins, and his museum was in Sykeston, Missouri. So Bob put me on a plane to Sykeston to go check out all these instruments 
inventory all of the piano rolls and the punched books that some of the instruments played and bring home a very particular instrument that booked its own first-class seat on the way home uh, for his his own collection. And the rest uh, became Disney property. And I hadn't heard that Sadie Mae was considered for a show, but it doesn't surprise me at all because Bob was really fond of what those instruments represented and the unique sound that they would lend to a place like Fort Wilderness or uh, Pioneer Hall, um, any of those themed environments that Disney had all over the property. Right. You got to wonder what happened to those. I mean, I'm assuming that they sold some of them off. Do you know what? Yeah, I visited some of them in a warehouse uh, many years later. Some of them found their way into executive homes. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> I was chastised for bringing that to Bob's attention. Um, <laughs> you know, I had an inventory. I had been very diligent at making sure I knew where everything was. And when things turned up missing, there, there's an oxymoron for you. Um <laughs> I had to go to Bob and say, Bob, I don't know what's happening with these. And he just said, don't worry about it. The man just loved a good band organ, Michael. I know. And, uh, you know, I I do too. I'm kind of obsessed with the Sadie Mae ever since we found (laughs) our first mention of it. Uh, It hurts my soul that this collection that Bobbiani purchased was broken up uh, in the, the, you know, dark days of the 90s and kind of... thrown to the four corners because it was quite an amazing collection. Yes. Um, that band organ we have mentioned a few times uh, and also in a relation to a proposed show at Fort Wilderness, but it was purchased, as uh, Don said, from Paul Eakins in Missouri with the roles to play it for the parade being prepared by a man in Antwerp, Belgium and recorded in Nashville, Tennessee. Now, this is a lot of effort to bring the city May to folks' ears. Yeah, and, uh, you know, not a small piece of machinery either. They're dragging here and there and everywhere. At some point, Michael, we'll have to do a blow-by-blow review of this parade and its music because it was quite the parade, and it ran twice a day, both day and night a lot of the time, which Yeah, and maybe a five-part episode just to talk our way through it because it's the longest parade in history, it seems like. It's huge. Uh, But you always have to watch out for those pesky East Coast elites, Michael. Disney has always feared them in the 1960s. And sure enough, the New York Times had a lot to say about this announcement. The Times said that the parade, quote, may also incur the wrath of critics who fear the celebration engenders commercialization and spawns obfuscation of its revolutionary antecedents. What a mouthful. Yikes. Uh, According to the Times, this was a major breakthrough in private corporations participating on a large scale for the bicentennial. While Jeremy Rifkin, the chairman of the so-called anti-government group, the People's Bicentennial Commission, asked, quote, Where do they get off staging what amounts to a commercial promotion in a government installation? The chair of the federal bicentennial group, John Warner, marveled at sharing a 48th birthday with Mickey Mouse and shook hands with the Big Cheese himself, who, of course, appeared alongside Goofy and Donald in that famous riff of the Spirit of 76 painting by Archibald Willard. Uh, This would also be the logo of the celebration, similar to a 1939 cover of 
a Mickey Mouse magazine that had the characters in a similar style. Uh, yeah, so already, already very controversial. Well, if they're uh, salty about the bicentennial thing hitting the State Department, they're going to be really mad when they set up an office there to promote Epcot and That's World exactly Showcase. Pretty right. much about the same time or soon after. So it's get ready, it's starting. Coming. That's right. A similar presentation to the one made at the State Department was made at the Contemporary Resort in March of 1975 for local press and VIPs, where Yanni was presented with a bicentennial flag by the Orange County Bicentennial Committee. How many bicentennial committees do we need? A lot. Uh, There it was stressed that not only would the parade celebrate the bicentennial, but the film America the Beautiful would also have added scenes to commemorate sites relevant to the Bicentennial, such as Colonial Williamsburg and Independence Hall. Both America the Beautiful and the D-Ticket Hall of Presidents would require no ticket for the duration of the Bicentennial celebration. Look at that. Added value, Michael. Absolutely. Free stuff. Fireworks were a big part of the celebration, and in preparation for a huge demand for red, white, and blue fireworks, Disney sent drawings around the world to consult with fireworks makers in Japan, China, and other countries to help design and craft their show. Walt Disney World Ambassador Susie O'Hara was chosen in October of 1974 to be the East Coast representative on the whirlwind tour around the country and world, representing Disney and the United States in advance of the Bicentennial. O'Hara was a diamond horseshoe dancer and was the reigning Miss Orlando, the successor to none other than Delta Burke, who gave up the title to become Miss Florida. I could not believe this when I found this out. <laughs> it really is like uh, Paul Harvey, the rest of the story, That's or right. connections or something. Uh, yeah, Delta Burke, Miss Orlando. Uh, but I guess, you know, when they name the runner-up... Uh, they always say if if the winner is unable to perform her duties, then it falls to you. So, there you Susie go. O'Hara, it's your time to shine. And in a weird, uh, you know, twist of fate, they said that since she was becoming a Disneyland ambassador or Disney World ambassador, with a few days left, if anything came up, Delta Burke would fill in for her. So, in your face, <laughs> any emergencies, they airlift in Delta Burke. <laughs> So O'Hara and Disneyland ambassador Kathy Smith were given an official send-off by the previously mentioned John Warner, head of the Bicentennial Commission, and C. Langhorn Washburn, the Undersecretary of Commerce and head of the U.S. Travel Service. Great name. Perfect name. Perfect name. Uh, C. Langhorn would soon after uh, join Imagineering as their point man for World Showcase. Well, uh, to go between it. them and the State Department. So, yeah. Man. So they were declared Visit USA ambassadors, which was a program the travel service started to encourage people to visit the U.S., of course. Uh, O'Hara and Smith would visit 10 major cities around the world and visit many more locations in the U.S. itself. The, the stories of this are wonderfully collected in a 1975 edition of the Disney News. Uh, Smith would write, quote, London is everything I expected and then some. There is such an aura about London, one instantly feels a certain reverence for a country so rich in the history of Western civilization, unquote. <laughs> it's very formal. Uh, mm-hmm. I was proud on their trip to London that they took a moment to feed the birds in Trafalgar Square. That should be mandatory for any Disney ambassador. Uh, absolutely. Not well, getting s- misty thinking right. about it. 
Not on the steps of St. Paul, but we'll count it. It's close enough. And next for the ladies was a trip to Paris, where they presented the ambassador with a Spirit of 76 music box with Mickey, Donald, and Goofy emblazoned on top. Oh, to see the expression he gave, I imagine. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) The women claimed the highlight of the Paris visit was a bistro where the owner collected all kinds of Mickey Mouse memorabilia, which he displayed all over his restaurant, which had Mickey Moose, of course. Uh, Kathy noted that the cauliflower at the restaurant tasted different than back home, only to find out it wasn't cauliflower with hollandaise sauce. It was brains. <laughs> this brain. Monkey's brains, though That's common in Cantonese yes. cuisine, are not often to be found in Washington, D.C. That's exactly what I thought of. Thank you. Oh, that is that is gnarly. Yeah. Brains, brains. Uh the two ambassadors headed to Amsterdam, then West Berlin, where they were stopped at a roadblock where the police mistook them for kidnappers of a mayoral candidate. <laughs> Evidently, they matched the description. Uh, The Disney European representative had left their papers in the hotel. Got to be fired for that. No papers. Uh, So they were escorted back to the hotel. According to Susie, quote, we showed them our passports, our red, white, and blue uniforms, and our identity papers. We even showed them our Mickey Mouse pins, but they insisted on a full-scale security check. Oh, man. Papers, please. That's right. Gee whiz. I want to know the story of who these uh, kidnappers were who met Susie O'Hara and <laughs> her right. retinue. That is a good question. But yeah, some scandal, some slight scandal. Really? Uh, the ladies then toured Scandinavia and Stockholm and Copenhagen. Then were off to Rome where they were feted at a reception with all kinds of dignitaries and actress Mercedes McCambridge. Okay, sure. <laughs> Why not? Perhaps... A little bit more inappropriate was the report back from Iran, where the men were so good-looking. Quote, they all look like Omar Sharif, but the women wear long, dark dresses and veils whenever they leave their homes. We were walking around in our ambassador outfits and were a spectacle, the way they looked at us. It would be like someone going to church in a bikini here in the States. Oh, man. (laughs) Oh, boy. Yeah. Omar Sharif, though. I mean, the men were hot. Good-looking fella. Good bridge player, too. That's right. Uh, The duo then headed to Hong Kong and Tokyo, where the girls had trouble eating with chopsticks. (laughs) Quote, I tasted the raw squid, and there was also a little fish like a sardine, which you were supposed to eat, eyes, tailbones, and all. I hid it under a lettuce leaf, said Kathy. (laughs) I love they put this all, this is all in Disney news. Oh, yes. It's a great article. Great article. Oh, boy. As they headed back to the States, the ladies reflected. According to Kathy, quote, in the States, we are like all the different countries. We've got all the different climates and attitudes. I came back believing that for people who want to travel, the United States is the best bet. Mm-hmm. That's a true no. Visit USA rep right there. <laughs> no weird food either. <laughs> Back at home, and after visiting sites around the country, Susie O'Hara would tour her friend, the president's daughter, Susan Ford, on several trips to Walt Disney World, particularly touring her on the brand new River Country Water Park that opened in June of 1976. On that trip, 
As she ate watermelon at River Country, she talked to the press and claimed she may get her father a set of bicentennial glasses as a gift. Is this not the scene, Michael? Just eating a little watermelon at River Country, having a little press junket. What was it called? Like Pop's Porch or something? The the food location? I can't remember. Sitting out on the grass, eating some watermelon with like the press all gathered around with their like notepads. So, Susan, what are you going to bring your dad back anything? Oh. In just a few short days, the bicentennial would arrive on property. And in addition to the aforementioned parades and attractions, the fireworks would truly be spectacular surrounding the July 4th holiday. Each night over an extended holiday weekend, the Orlando Sentinel reported, quote, the Magic Kingdom skies will be lit for 30 minutes in reds, whites, and blues as a mammoth helicopter-borne electrical flag flies above Bay Lake. Electrical water pageant floats will sail the Seven Seas Lagoon as four hot air balloons share the skies with kite ski flyers with trailing sparklers. America on Parade will march at 2 and 9 p.m. and midnight following performances by a thousand-piece marching band. Oh, man. They knew how to do it. Pageantry is a lost art. Because really man, is. they knew they knew from pageantry back in the day. Also, they knew about keeping stuff open way late. There's a lot of stuff open way late back then, uh, mm-hmm. per demand. Uh, I want to know more about this helicopter-borne electric flag <laughs> mammoth <laughs> flying above Bay Lake. Can you imagine? Uh, all I know is whenever the electrical water pageant makes it into the local paper, I am there for it. Yes, um, give it the credit. Yeah, I, I cannot imagine this whole thing. I mean, the hot air balloons with mm-hmm. the kite skiers. It's all, it's, it's a lot. Kite ski flyers. <laughs> it's a lot to envision. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Throwing it all. Um, but soon, Susie O'Hara would end her reign as Disney ambassador. In her future in the Sentinel, she reflected on her time as ambassador and Miss Orlando. And they even took the time to interview her special boyfriend, in quotes, because that was what they said, Dick Schroeder, a 31-year-old Orlando auto salesman. Now, Mm. I had to include this. As much of the talk of O'Hara in the press was kind of inappropriate in the line of the times where they, you know, if it's a female, they talk about her physical attributes all the time, just constantly talking about her appearance. So, uh, they interview this guy, her special boyfriend, Uh, Schroeder says that all O'Hara's travel, quote, has created problems. Time will tell after her reign is over if it had a permanent effect on a relationship. Boy. He goes on to say, quote, she is absent-minded. And, quote, she is a good cook with one exception, breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) Which... Incidentally, it seems like the hardest one to mess up. But I know. Uh, how do you mess up breakfast? I mean, just completely unrelated. But how do you mess up breakfast? What are you expecting, Dick Schroeder? I don't know. Uh, he went on to say that they both enjoy tennis. But, quote, our styles are different. And I get a little impatient with her. She's got all the patience in our relationship. Oh, gee, what a prize. Uh, I am happy to report that they did not end up together. But, my gosh. That's, that's good. <laughs> What in the world? Perpetual Bachelor Dick Schroeder. Dick Schroeder Motors. <laughs> Dick Schroeder going to Dick Schroeder. Um, 
Well, I hope that Bob Yanni took a vacation after this because, I mean, what a job well done. The pageantry, mm-hmm. like you said. And soon he would be reviving the Main Street Electrical Parade as we know it and love it. And Disney executives would be attempting to do even more work with the State Department, like Michael said, and other countries on developing Epcot. But for these nights surrounding the 4th, everyone turned the clock back 200 years to celebrate the good old U.S. of A. and the glorious 4th. America did not exist. Four centuries of work, bloodshed, loneliness, and fear created this land. We built America, and the process made us Americans. A new breed, rooted in all races, stained and tinted with all colors, a seeming ethnic anarchy. Then, in a little time, we became more alike than we were different. A new society. Not great but fitted by our very faults for greatness. Perhaps the zenith of Disney's patriotic expressions over the years has been Epcot's American Adventure, a stunning stage production featuring large-format film displays and an enormous cast of audio-animatronic figures from America's past. The attraction opened with the rest of the park in 1982 and was one of its foundational signature experiences. The show is pure imagineering at its finest, doing something completely new on a scale never before attempted with technological leaps so daring that it's a miracle the whole thing ever worked at all. Jeff, uh, people tend to overlook this show these days, sort of. Uh, It's still a technological marvel, though, and you can pretty much definitively say that they don't make them like this anymore. Yeah, I mean, I almost... uh, I tell people to go, you know, when they go to Epcot, go on this go on living with the land. I tell them to go on the early stuff. I never hear back about this show, but I think it's incredible. I mean, I think it's amazing. Absolutely. The, Agreed. The, the scale of it and the ambition of it and the execution is all, I mean, it's, it's probably one of my top 10 favorite Walt Disney world attractions. Yeah. And the more, you know about it, the more impressive it gets. That's uh, true. Once you know That's how true. it all works. Um, yeah, of a scale of something that has yet to be duplicated. Right. There's plenty to talk about the creation of the American adventure and how it was built. 
But we'd like to take a moment today to look deep back through the mists of time to the origins of the concept and have a peek at some of the earliest attempts to bring the show to light. From the moment the idea of a World Showcase attraction for Walt Disney World began to emerge around 1973, it was known that an American pavilion would be part of the mix. In the original concept for World Showcase, this meant that the American pavilion would be just like all the others, a pie piece of a pavilion wedged into one of two large, multi-story, semi-circular show buildings. This vision lasted until around 1976, when the models for the separate Future World and World Showcase gates were famously pushed together and Epcot Center was born. At this point, the USA Pavilion was designed as a separate structure that would sit at the midway point of the park between Future World and World Showcase. In this way, it would serve as the gateway to the World Showcase. Park models from 1977 and 1978 show a distinctly modern building, which guests could walk under to reach World Showcase. The later versions somewhat resemble Washington, D.C.'s Hirshhorn Museum, which had opened in 1974. But while it's easy to track where, physically, the attraction was intended to go, it's more difficult to chart the paths of the various ideas for the show which would be featured inside. As the show's eventual writer and producer Randy Bright would say in 1982, Imagineers went through six attempts to create a workable and exciting show. Early attempts at defining an American attraction, back in 1975 when it would still have been inside the pie wedge of the World Showcase building, came from legendary designer Mark Davis. This humorous dark ride would have taken a musical look at American history with a very tongue-in-cheek vibe. Think lots of scenes with Paul Bunyan and other larger-than-life icons from American folklore. There must have been something in the air at the time with Mark and folklore figures. We talked about back in episode 8 about how he wanted to incorporate these characters into his adventure house for Fort Wilderness. And around this time at Disneyland, there was a proposed Land of Legends, which would have also used folklore characters like Paul Bunyan and Ichabod Crane for a variety of attractions and shops. We came so close to this Disney folklore fest so many times and never got it. That makes me crazy. I know. The Land of Legends would have been incredible. Some Wind Wagon Smith love and that and the Fort Wilderness. So, ah, I know. It's just, why can't there be multiple attractions to, to a country? Put this in and something else. Come on. Oh, I know. Put put this about like put a ride behind with this kind of stuff. Yeah. It'd be great. One of my favorite I looked up the Land of Legends thing um just as a reference when I was researching this and had forgotten that it included the Paul Bunyan Buffeteria. <laughs> which is a phrase. I mean, how can you miss with that? That's you perfection. Could, yeah, that would be amazing. As Randy Bright would later say, uh, ideas for a ride approach for the American Pavilion were discarded because Imagineering believed that strong, hard information could not be conveyed by means of a ride. Unlike Pirates of the Caribbean, where guests could drop in and out of each scene at any point and still understand what was going on, the narrative required for the American show would become garbled in, for instance, a free-floating boat ride. As Mark Davis himself so wisely said, Rides like this are great for conveying theme, but terrible for telling a detailed story. Uh, hard facts. Hard facts. A lot of hard facts in this. <laughs> uh, also, at some point in this period, as Bright would later recount, a, quote, well-known Hollywood producer and a top writer in the nation were contacted in the mm. search for a story concept. 
neither idea was used. Now, I'm not sure who Bright was talking about here, but it really shows how far Disney was casting about for ideas. Things really started to gel for the show in 1976, when a number of potential scripts were turned out. The first treatment for an American Pavilion show I've seen comes from March of 1976, and was put together by Marty Sklar. What Sklar describes here is not unfamiliar. Quote, We see a special kind of theater, he writes, combining audio-animatronics figures from America's history with a dramatic film process such as IMAX. Early IMAX shout out here. Yeah. The show's goal, Sklar said, was, quote, to tell a story in a dramatic way that can convey to our audience a strong message about the American way of life, our culture, traditions, heritage, future hopes, and dreams. In essence, what makes us tick. He also wanted to avoid duplicating the messages found in two patriotic Magic Kingdom attractions, the Hall of Presidents and the Circle Vision film America the Beautiful. That's an interesting, yeah, line to toe. I mean, that's hard, hard stuff. Yeah, exactly. I think pretty sure in, in all these documents, hard facts comes up a few times yeah. because they, uh, they love sticking to that. Uh, they really wanted to show the sort of, I guess you'd say tough periods and all warts and all perspective of America. What Scholar proposed was a five act theater show combining film and animatronics. Throughout Sklar's conception of the show, the people telling America's stories would be notable figures from the past. Thomas Jefferson, Mark Twain, Will Rogers, Robert Frost, Norman Rockwell, Teddy Roosevelt, and others. Each act would focus on a different thematic aspect of American life and would have a trio of audio-animatronic hosts, which reflected the theme of that segment, with other historical figures appearing in side vignettes, much like in the Carousel of Progress. So each, each act gets its own little trio, and then you have other people popping in on the side. You can really see the influence he's taken from uh, Carousel of Progress and some of the other shows they've done. Yeah, it's a pretty brilliant uh, idea. Yeah. If it works well, keep at it. Yeah. Uh, act one of Marty's show, We the People, would focus on how America is a nation of, for, and by the people. It would be hosted by statesmen Thomas Jefferson, Teddy Roosevelt, and Harry Truman. Hmm. While these figures would carry the story using real quotes from the actual historic figures, the back wall of the stage would be used as a projection surface for a film which helped tell the tale. The idea was not to reenact historical events, but to play the words of the past over filmed scenes from today, showing, in Sklar's words, that the philosophy of America's past is the reality of today and the promise of tomorrow, vitally alive. So I thought it's interesting he's not going for the historical recap. He's going for commentary on modern America. That's interesting. That's uh, per the... Uh, again, we've talked about the World Showcase issue in the past where uh, nations had a problem with looking too much in their tradition and past and they want to look at their present and future. So even that, the American Pavilion may be touched by this at this point. Yeah, exactly. Act two of Sklar's show would be called From Sea to Shining Sea and would highlight the natural and man-made beauty of America. Proposed hosts for this segment included Robert Frost, Walt Whitman, Carl Sandburg, Audubon, Thoreau, Emerson, Longfellow, a painter such as Andrew Wyeth, and perhaps, quote, an American balladeer of the John Denver country style. 
Oh, man. They went with a much less dated option. Also, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, we, let's get back to the first. The Truman uh, choice is interesting. Yeah, I was yeah. I was fascinated to see Truman in there. I uh, That stood out to me as well. That's interesting. Harry telling it like it is. I, yeah, I could deal with Robert Frost, though. I mean, that would be pretty sweet. That would be oh. interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, John. De- I just imagined Don Ver- John Denver in there. Uh, this does. This is not included in the part of the story that we are telling today. But uh, one of my favorite facts about you know, later versions of this show that uh, they were considering for a long time, the finale montage was going to be set to Neil Diamond's "Come Into America." Oh yeah, come on, missed opportunity <laughs> today. It's <laughs> blackout. <laughs> Oh, man, yeah, we'll have to talk about that sometime. That's very special. Uh, Act three, back on Marty's show, uh, The Land of Opportunity would highlight the creative spirit stimulated by competition, whether that be in the fields of invention and enterprise or entertainment and sports. Hosts would include creators like Thomas Edison or Andrew Carnegie, entertainers like Louis Armstrong or Bob Hope, or athletes like Babe Ruth, Jesse Owens, Billie Jean King, or Jackie Robinson. The idea, which I'm sure pleased Card Walker, was that anything was possible in America thanks to private enterprise. Man, to see uh, Babe Ruth and Bob Hope uh, trading one-liners is, uh, you know, stuff Bob of Hope dreams. with his uh, golf club. That's right. Swinging his golf club. And his Epcot uh, uh, ball cap. Yeah. <laughs> Self-referential. That's right. Oh, and then the inevitable like press photos of him posing with the figure. Yes, yes, of course. Uh, you got to have that. Uh, act four would mark the end of the theater show, but not of what Sklar dubbed the American Adventure. He was not using this as the name of the attraction. It's just a phrase that he used a lot. So obviously that's where that came from. This act would spotlight the unique character of the American people thanks to the freedoms that they enjoy. It would also discuss how America has become the melting pot of the world. For hosts, Sklar recommended, quote, philosophers and prophets of the American adventure and imagines an ongoing dialogue on stage between Benjamin Franklin, Mark Twain, and Will Rogers about the ongoing hopes and dreams of America. Uh, This trio of hosts obviously was the one that stuck throughout the development of the America show, with Rogers being relegated to a cameo appearance later in the process. But it's funny to see how, of all the, they were trying out these groups early on, and then they got one that stuck through the whole time. Yeah, that's a brilliant group, by the way. I mean, I, I like what we got. I, I, you know, I can't imagine it any other way, but I'm always curious what it would have been like to have Will Rogers in there, too. It's just such a great uh, crew. Yeah, it really is. Quippy, quippy squad. Yeah. Accompanying this trio would be a film portraying, quote, the good life in the land of the, the free. Good life. <laughs> it would show Americans celebrating life, playing and participating in leisure pursuits and unique celebrations. Unlike the superstars of Act 3, the focus of Act 4 would be everyday Americans from a range of backgrounds. Watch out for that leisure, though. <laughs> I know. Uh, yeah, I guess... Uh, Mark Twain would come out and warn them against it. Too much. There's too much leisure going on out here. (laughs) At this early phase of discussion, the show would conclude with guests actually stepping from the theater 
onto a moving turntable and into Omnimover vehicles to ride through the show's fifth act and grand finale, the space-themed Challenge of the Future. Hmm. This, yeah, this hybrid ride idea was something carried over from early proposals for the Carousel of Progress. An alternate finale idea for the American show was something that Walt had originally proposed for the first pass Imagineers made at the Hall of Presidents. At the end of the show, the dome-like ceiling of the theater would open to reveal a large format space-themed film projection. In either case, the finale would challenge guests to, quote, achieve the ideals and dreams and hopes for the future that man's technical skills have placed within our grasp. So big, big ideas at the end of the show. Yeah, big uh, showstopper finale. At the end of March 1976, Disney legend and man of many hats, James Algar, turned in a more detailed treatment for what he dubbed the American Dream. Algar had previously written great moments with Mr. Lincoln, America the Beautiful, and the Hall of Presidents, so he knew the material. Algar's treatment combines Sklar's thematic approach with a more traditional historic narrative. An opening film prologue begins with the pilgrims arriving at Plymouth Rock and ends with the moon landing. The format of the show seems, from Algar's descriptions, to be a circle vision theater with audio-animatronic tableau appearing on a stage beneath the front center screen. The tone of the show is very serious, instantatorian, and not unlike the original Hall of President script. James Algar could really uh, could really do this kind of material. Oh, gosh, yeah. And he was involved in a lot of the uh, True Life adventures as well. Um, man, and again... This is the old Hall of Presidents, kind of, or One Nation Under God, we should say, stage with the circle vision on top, which would have been mm -hmm. interesting to see a show in that uh, realm. Would exactly. have been cool. Yeah. Very, Imagine very a wheel. Imagine. Yeah. Uh, apparently, Algar's idea got some traction because a month later in April of 1976, he submitted a first draft narration script for The American Dream which had been officially assigned a production number. It consists of the film prologue, four acts, and a finale, and it is a beast. I have no idea how long this show would have been if presented, but it would have been massive. The script of the narration alone was 44 pages. Uh, this thing reads like it would have lasted hours. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, but since we debuted the Progress City Players on an episode last summer, I've really wanted to dramatize the script somehow. So I'm not going to take you all the way through it, but I do want to tick off some highlights because this, just try to envision all of this happening in one show. Like if you think the current show is long, good Lord. So uh, the show feels much like the American Adventure does today. It's a mix of filmed elements and audio animatronic vignettes accompanied by a narrator, which introduces the scenes. Now, this isn't like a Ben Franklin and Mark Twain, but the effect is kind of the same uh, throughout. Act one, the compact with destiny, begins <laughs> in a cabin on the Mayflower, where William Bradford is reading the Mayflower compact to a room of pilgrims. And boy, he reads the whole thing. Just reads it right out. Uh, we see Patrick Henry in the First Continental Congress. He does some reading as well. We see Thomas Paine at a printing press reading a copy of Common Sense out loud. Uh, there's Valley Forge, Ben Franklin writing at his desk. And then there's a circle vision film montage of Americans at work and play 
accompanied by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir singing God Bless America. Oh, that sounds like a whole thing to itself. That is Act 1. Act 2, The Shining Land, kicks off with Thomas Jefferson sending Lewis and Clark off into the wilderness. A filmed montage of the American wilderness follows before we arrive at Walden Pond, where an audio-animatronic Henry David Thoreau waits on a stump to read to us from his journal. Yes. From the, yeah. <laughs> uh, from there, we meet John Muir, and then we find Robert Frost amid the snow of a New England winter. Uh, each of these guys gives us a little speech and reads to us uh, some of their famous works. This is my, this is my part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, In a southern plantation, the narrator sings the praises of Stephen Foster, while an assembled group of quote-unquote figures uh, sings Old Folks at Home and Camptown Races. A turntable brings a Mississippi steamship on stage as the folks sing Foster's Deglindy Burke, which I've never heard of, but apparently it's a song. (laughs) Uh, Huck Finn and Jim come rafting down the river as Mark Twain stands off to the side and comments and recites passages from uh, Huckleberry Finn. We get a scene of Tom Sawyer painting the whitewashed fence as Mark Twain recites passages from Tom Sawyer. Uh, If that's not enough for you, how about a scene of William Faulkner watching Pickett's Charge at Gettysburg? Oh, yeah, come uh, on. General Sherman speaking to the troops at a campfire after Gettysburg. (laughs) How about a filmed cattle drive on the Chisholm Trail? Sure. Uh, Why don't we have Sinclair Lewis and Stephen Vincent Benet talk about small-town frontier American life? Uh, How about a filmed montage of wildlife with an audio-animatronic wagon train and herd of buffalo, a bighorn ram, and a cougar, uh, accompanied by the voice of Walt Whitman. Come on. But I'm that's not in. all. That's not all. <laughs> Act three, the land of opportunity, is here to tell us about the American people. We kick things off with more Thoreau. Uh, Henry Ford shows up with his gasoline buggy in the 1890s. Thomas Edison shows up with his light bulb, of course, as does Ben Franklin and his kite, complete with in-theater electrical lightning effects and a sparking key. Uh, we get an unnamed atomic scientist in his lab before Orville Wright flies a biplane from the back of the theater over the audience and around the auditorium. Nice. Uh, the effect is intentionally uh, uh, intended to startle the audience because he comes from the back of the theater behind their backs, swoops over their head, and flies around the auditorium. So, But wasn't it that startling to the people of the United States when it actually happened? <laughs> True, true. It's all a metaphor. Uh, Act three ends with my favorite part of the show, which shows just how insane this whole production would have been. I'll just read directly from the script here. Quote, Suddenly, a surrealistic flying saucer lowers from the dark ceiling as though out of the cosmos. It hovers overhead, jets humming, searchlights playing around the theater, as though taking a bearing for a landing. Narrator. Space travel for the right, boys, was a distance of 120 feet. Now it is the distance between planets. Who is to say how far out it will go, or where it will end? The saucer whooshes away into its own 
blackout. <laughs> I love this so much. Can you imagine how amazing this would be in a theater? Yeah. Just like a 1950s flying saucer. <laughs> with lights. Algar coming hard with it, man. Who's to say how far out it will go in this script? But how could you top it? Well, that's up to Act 4, The Challenge of Tomorrow. We're introduced to Carl Sandburg, standing amid the big city, who recites some poems to us. Uh, Walt Whitman recites, I hear America singing, while images of American workers appear on the Circle Vision screens. We then get a rendering of traditional college songs, beginning with the Whiff and Poof song, and accompanied by the, quote, Young America montage showing student activities at various colleges and ending at a football game. Oh, no, There's no. a comic strip montage for no. some reason. Uh, quotes from Twain and Herman Melville and quote, the irrepressible Mr. Dooley, unquote. <laughs> <laughs> we go from the comic strips to Herman Melville in his study writing Moby Dick, of course. And Thank then you. to Martin Luther King speaking at the Lincoln Memorial. Okay, we're back on track. Yeah. If that wasn't enough, steal yourself for the finale. The Cathedral of the Heavens. Uh, the roof of the theater opens up. And, well, I'll just let the script speak for itself. Quote, The whole dome will slide away, and the audience will end up sitting under the open heavens. Ethereal voices begin a hymn-like anthem. Presently, Space vehicles begin to whiz by on their journeys to the cosmos. We, the audience, are also traveling in space. The moon approaches nearer and nearer. There we see the American flag, the American moonship, and the American astronauts climbing out of it. Unquote. We hear Neil Armstrong's voice stepping onto the moon. For the narrator questions, where will we go next? For an answer, we hear the voice of Robert Byrd for some words he wrote when he arrived at the South Pole. While he speaks, we speed out past the moon and into the Milky Way as the soundtrack plays the Jupiter movement from Gustav Holst's The Planets. It ends, the script says, in, quote, a crescendo of symphonic grandeur. Jeff, what is this show? <laughs> I am stunned. You know, when you said the Cathedral of the Heavens, I was like, what, what? But I have to say that I feel like, you know, if I was the United States, I would be like, I would put the moon landing on like the dollar bill, like anything, you know, it's like, oh, yeah. what else do you need to know? Like it needs to be more emphasized. It needs this level of emphasis always. So <laughs> it does. I kind of agree. I kind of agree with this. It's like. There needs to be more uh, Holtz and uh, showing the moon landing, you know, in our in our world now. More celebration of the moon landing. That is the inspiration. That is the kick in the pants I think America needs is some that's Gustav right. Holtz and moon landing. That's right. As a big fan of the planets, I think this would be awesome. Oh, it'd be uh, amazing. I I feel like James Algar was listening to a lot of Pink Floyd or something. Because right. there's a whole lot of laserium going on here. He had dabbled in the counterculture at some point. <laughs> Apparently so. I just hate that uh, Winston Hibbler couldn't do this deterioration. I mean, this would be, I could just oh. hear it right now. Yes. 
Paul Freeze would be a good one too. Yes, he would also doing the sort of riff on the adventures through inner space because exactly. you got a little bit of that like how far out will we go? Yeah, trippy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh man, this is bonkers. So this just gives you the an, an idea of the scope of show the Imagineers were thinking of, but it didn't end there. Just a week after Algar submitted his script, Mark Davis submitted a treatment for something called America Speaks a title that's a nice parallel to his America Sings attraction. This show would have been a similar affair with notable Americans delivering speeches in their own words. Davis's document is not a script. It's mostly a compendium of notable quotes from individuals, starting with Ben Franklin, including Clara Barton, Carl Sandburg, Mark Twain, Thoreau, Edison, Rogers, Einstein, and many more. But apparently someone liked the name of the thing, because by June of 1976, Algar had written another script for budget estimating purposes. This one also called America Speaks. This is written to be an 18-minute show, although Algar notes that it could also still be a ride-through attraction. So maybe that was still under consideration at this point. This show is interesting in that it combines some elements of Algar's earlier script with some of Davis's quotes and with Sklar's idea of the various trios of notable hosts. Again, the Circle Vision Theater would be combined with an animatronic show discussing the real people behind America's story. Some of Mark Davis's sketches from this period were made to accompany this idea. We see a trio, for instance, of musical figures Stephen Foster, George Gershwin, and Louis Armstrong. Ooh. Yeah, that would be cool. These group discussions are mixed in with vignettes from Algar's earlier script, like Twain on the Mississippi with Huck Finn or Martin Luther King in Washington, D.C. Other notable trios include Thoreau, Muir, and Walt Whitman talking about natural America, and Will Rogers, Mark Twain, and Robert Benchley talking about the American sense of humor. That <laughs> yes. should be interesting. This attempt was only the beginning of the American adventure, adventure, of course, but you can see the seeds of the eventual attraction taking root. As I mentioned, the trio of hosts would eventually be set at Franklin, Twain, and Will Rogers, although Walter Cronkite was at one point considered to represent the 20th century. But eventually it was whittled down to Franklin and Twain. The Circle Vision idea would be downsized and some of the more out there effects and in-theater shenanigans would be removed as well. But even at this early point, the Imagineers were making good progress on figuring out a very complicated show, which would become a true classic in every sense of the word. tradition was Disney's annual patriotic celebration, which would inevitably come on TV this time of year. And uh, Jeff, we've 
We've got one for the ages, I guess you could say. It is one for the ages in size, that's for sure. It is a large, it is a great American celebration. (laughs) It's true. Uh, Perhaps fitting for this era, the early 1990s, when Disney had such patriotic aspirations and things on their mind, and uh, flag-waving being at a premium in the post-Gulf War era. (laughs) So... Yeah, had a lot to a lot to say. Yeah, it's interesting. We are talking about 1991's Disney's Great American Celebration. It's a, a show that came on on July 4th and uh, merged the coasts, uh, which is not unprecedented, but pretty rare. Um, man, uh, this is kind of a unique point in time because. What was the one, 1989 we discussed last year? Was that the mm-hmm. year? Yeah. Well, and, uh, 88. Or 88, 88. 88, 88, right, because studios hadn't opened. So this was pre-Euro uh, Disney opening, and like you said, the there's a lot of patriotism going on. There's a lot of Disney decade going on, probably mm-hmm. some Disney's America. Maybe percolating in the background, absolutely. And like you said, you know, the parade we talked about last year at this time was the Walt Disney World 4th of July Spectacular, whatever it was called. Uh, this not branded as Walt Disney World, also not branded as 4th of July. As Like you said, it's it's a patriotic celebration. And it's interesting, it's, it's like the end of this era, kind of. Uh, I would say, you know, you're a Disney moving into like Lion King mid-90s, there's... That's a whole different world. So this is kind of a, a middle period or end of end of something. End of that yeah. 80s Disney. Yeah, and very much in the beginning of trying to re- lean really hard into being hip. It'll come up a lot during this. Oh, of, gosh, uh, yes. Very much in production style and in uh, content. Trying to be edgy for uh, for the kids and really just kicking kicking off that. So this special was produced by Gary Bormitt, who uh, would later produce Walt Disney World Inside Out, Michael. And uh, that special Disney Channel salutes the American teacher, which was such a big deal when we were coming up. (laughs) Yes! Which is the Disney fitting. Channel Teaching Awards? Yes, constant presence for some reason. Uh, he would also produce a lot of the world's funniest specials, which I find very fitting, and I will talk about that in a little bit. Michael Dimich directs. He of Kids Incorporated directing <gasps> fame. Wow. He had K-I-D-S. also DS. That's right. He had also done some Magic of David Copperfield specials. Also fitting. <laughs> Truly. And uh, some Disney sing-along song uh, videos that would come out a little bit later, including uh, the Euro Disney Disney sing-along song, which I don't think I've ever seen. So, Well, now I want to. I'd love to see that, see what that's about. (laughs) Right. Uh, It's hosted by Robert Guillaume and Connie Selica. Michael, Robert Guillaume, an important figure in our childhood, especially yours. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Big, big fave from the Benson days. Benson, quite a, a staple of our youth for <laughs> yes, some reason. Yes, I don't yes. really know why, but uh, big Benson fans way, way back in the day. And so uh, as he became sort of closer and closer into the Disney realm, he was already an established celebrity in our world. 
And so it was it was so exciting to have him come in. But again, this is way before Lion King, so I'm not sure how he wound up here. It's an interesting tandem. And Connie Selka uh, was also in a hit of our childhood, The Greatest American Hero. Incidentally, yes. she also appeared in the TV movie Captain America 2, Death Too Soon, which, I mean, that sounds interesting. That sounds amazing. I <laughs> yes. she was Peggy Carter. That would be something. <laughs> Connie Selka. Yeah, a big, big, big crush from the early days, for sure. But but they weren't really doing much to promote at this point in time in their career. So uh, how do they right. get picked? I, I, don't I, I don't know. Again, because you see Robert Gilman, you think, well, he's there because of Rafiki. But no, this is well before that. And it's, you know, I think of Connie Selica as a sort of 80s big TV celeb. And so, yeah, it's just kind of an odd point for them and also for... Uh, some of uh, the musical guests as well that oh I yes don't connect to 1991. That's right. So uh, shall we begin this? Let's then. go. No more running down the wrong road, dancing to a different drum. Can't you see what's going on deep inside your heart? All right, we start with a nice shot of Sleeping Beauty Castle in Disneyland, festooned with bunting in red, white, and blue, and we see young Tevin Campbell in a very 1991 colored vest, and he goes into Sweet Freedom, as popularized by Michael McDonald. I had not thought of this song in a long time, but it immediately came back to me. <laughs> this is a weird way to begin with, because it's like, kind of like a cold open on the castle, yes. and uh, with like scamps pouring from within. That's it's right. really weird. So yeah, I, I didn't remember Tevin Campbell per se. Do you, do you remember him? I remember the name, but I I mean, I was as as I will state several times throughout this episode. This was a time when I was very rapidly withdrawing from the pop culture of the current day, <laughs> and uh, I, I think I had this in my notes throughout. It was like this is why I was withdrawing from the pop culture of the right. day. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, not, uh, you know, names I recognize, but know nothing about. Really. I was very much in it in 1991, soon to withdraw myself, but uh, he was a singer and actor. He was kind of under Quincy Jones' wing. He appeared in Purple Rain, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and was the voice of the pop star Powerline in the Goofy movie. See, that's what I thought. I, w I was getting ready to look that up because I, I thought he might be Powerline. But how could, he must have been tiny in Purple Rain because he's like a little kid here. I know. And he, he really does great. I mean, he's uh, he sings it well. That's not an easy song. Uh, like you said, there's a, there's a crew of skipping youngsters who come out of the castle and start swaying their arms to the beat, which is great. And uh, then we have flag girls coming out from different spokes of the hub in great ceremonial fashion. I mean, this gets uh large here in a second it does it, it gets huge and the i laughed first when the the scamps came from the castle then the marching band flag showed up and then it's just like a thousand kids from like the local ymca day camp it's just like they went to local like day camps or like hey you kids want to come to disneyland to be in this show because like as it goes on it's like the kids get younger Yes. And like at the end, it's just like, you know, like six year old kids like swaying their arms. It's kind of weird. 
Yeah, it's it's wild. Uh, midway through this, we have our hosts doing a stand-up in the middle of all this fanfare as yeah. uh, sax blares in the background, which I thought was pretty funny. They're introducing everyone. They're, we're going to be doing a nationwide coast-to-coast party. Uh, Robert introduces the Grand Marshal of the Special, Mickey, who is up above Disneyland in Air Force One, of course. We are no stranger to Air Force One. It was pretty ubiquitous at this time and factored heavily in the 1986 Christmas special we talked about. So, Air Force One, yet again. Uh, Mickey is dressed in his little Uncle Sam outfit and has a headset he can communicate to the ground with. And uh, as Tevin picks back up into the number, Mickey supposedly travels (laughs) all over America with ground shots. But it's so great. (laughs) Uh, I mean, first... This is a big episode for characters having fake AV like interface yes. equipment, like yes. multiple characters with fake headsets. But my, somebody was being like, a stickler for this, you know. They're like, it's not realistic. They give him a headset. Yeah, exactly. But then he does this. He goes, he's like, here we go, and it does the old like he's sitting still, but the camera's like swoops by him dramatically <laughs> yes. to make yes. it look like he's going, like something we would do as kids to be like. Right implied motion uh, but yeah they have this like beetles flying sort of montage of like going over america but then it fades from mickey to footage of people square dancing oh man yeah cultural flair what what makes america a square dance mm. a rodeo mm-hmm. <laughs> aerial shots of uh, various landscapes and monuments. We got Mount Rushmore. We have the Mickey Cornfield, which was yes. from this time period. That was a uh, Jack Lindquist fever dream for Mickey's Mickey's 60th birthday. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Mayflower uh, lo- replica. Yeah. A lot of people standing out in a field somewhere, like in colored shirts to build, make an American flag. Right. Just right. typical things you see from the air. Yes. Um, Finally, it shows Air Force One above the contemporary outside the Magic Kingdom. And then over Epcot, where uh, they have the little Walt Disney World logo. And then we go to the American Adventure, where we have more flag waving. Here we have an an older crowd doing some contemporary dancing and gyrating. And Mickey shows up in a classic car. So a a really different vibe here. Yeah, uh, these are like, not kids. These are like cast member, entertainment cast right. members in uh, like sequined costumes with a very, this was before Barbie's world, but had a very Barbie's world vibe to it. Yes. And yes. maybe it's the squared shoulders of all the outfits and the, the sequence on everything. But uh, this is a pretty hilarious group. The cutting back and forth from Disneyland to Disney World is hilarious because every time, because they'll show the kids like waving their arms, then they'll cut back to Disney World and like the cast members were like twirling umbrellas. Right. And it's super 80s. It's It's, super, super 80s. It's like very MGM Studios comes to Epcot uh, vibe. Yes. Uh, And then even more people are crossing the drawbridge at Cinderella Castle. And, you know, like you said, there's just jump cuts over coast, a lot of children singing and swaying. There's a drum line break for good measure, some kick lines, Chip and Dale in their patriotic garb by the Belfry of the American Adventure. This is one of the most ambitious numbers I think they ever took on. 
I think so. In my notes, I had this is kind of a hot mess, just like America. Yes. Uh, they come back, and there there are adult cheerleaders with in sequined tops with Mickey Mouse on the front of their sequined tops, which are really uh, fashion forward. And then, like as you said, Chip and Dale on the top of the American Adventure waving flags. And then you've got the country bears dancing around doing like uh, uh, choreography in the middle of <laughs> just like madness. All these cast members doing all their different stuff in their sequins. And you've got the country bears in the middle just dancing. It's amazing they ever took the country bears out of anywhere because they had them in everything during this yes. time period. Yes. Everything. They appear multiple times during this special. Yes. So, uh, yeah, man. You couldn't pay me to get up on that belfry, by the way. No thanks. <laughs> no. In a costume where you Tiny. can't see? Yes. Yeah. Um, so we are off to a running start, and now we have the required intro credit roll. Welcome to Disney's Great American Celebration. With your host, Robert Guillaume. And Connie Selica. And starring Barbara Mandrell. Gina Easton, CNC Music Factory, The Kentucky Headhunters, Tevin Campbell, comedian Tim Allen, The Party, the comedy of Stephen Banks, and a special appearance by President George Bush. Disney's Great American Celebration is sponsored by Kissimmee St. Cloud, the vacation destination closest to Central Florida's best attractions, and Johnson & Johnson, where quality products have been a tradition for generations. And Bounce, it stops static before static stops you. We are back on Main Street at Disneyland, which is crammed for the host's stand-up here. Connie is wearing an interesting necktie-type thing. It kind of looks like she's ready to serve up some ice cream on Main Street here. It's kind of that and kind of like a 90s Star Trek episode where they go back to like the 21st century <laughs> yes. and have to dress in like slightly futuristic clothes. And uh, it's like we went to the year, you know, 2023 and... Uh, this is the costume she has. Yeah, it's a, um, it's something else. And uh, you know, Disneyland kicking off, uh, kicking off a parade. Uh, this is another um, moment when I realized you. Know, you talked about this is a time when things changed a lot, and mm -hmm. I think nothing can be more emblematic of that than the fact that when we talked about the 1988 special, they did. Uh, two parades they did the spirit of america parade then they did the main street electrical parade and they did them all the way through like blow by right. blow yeah and it was like full like 15 minutes or whatever coverage whereas this in this show the parades are an afterthought of an afterthought yes i was going to mention that and i remember so the, there's a 1990 i believe the Walt Disney World 4th of July that came on, and it's the one that had new kids on the block. Yes. And I remember you and I were just d appalled at the special Horrified, because yeah. the production value was starting to change. They were really starting to put more emphasis on the entertainment than the park, like a lot more. And this way, is like way, way more, even yeah. more, you know, like they're just like just putting people in to perform. 
the park footage is going way, way down. Um, yes. This one just happens to have a lot of great B-roll and like little segments in the middle, but there's no, you know, like we had the the feature on the Maelstrom in that last one, you know, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So Birthday land. Not uh, happening. Mickey's 60th, all sorts of stuff. Nothing, no like real Disney content in this at all. Yeah. Right. So they throw it to Main Street for the first parade, like Michael said, you know, there can't just be one parade. So if you listen to our special last year, you can hear us recap in full what is essentially a very similar parade uh, once used to commemorate the 200th anniversary of the Constitution in 1987. Here it is celebrating the bicentennial of the Bill of Rights. So we just keep going with bicentennial celebrations. Right amount. I was amazed to hear that because... You know, the, the, of course, 1976 was a huge celebration. And then even in 87 with the constitution, they had a pretty, I mean, they, they marked the celebration with real things. They never made a big deal about the bill of rights. So I was surprised to hear them bring it up, but uh, still opening off with that same spirit of America song from 1988. That's right. That's right. Like you said, it's a super condensed version of this parade. We see the Walt Disney World band with Chip and Dale. It's back at Walt Disney World, right? I didn't mention that. Yeah, yeah, this is Walt Disney. This is the Disney hit parade, quote unquote. And I think my guess from just looking at this parade, which I do not remember, was maybe it was music themed. Because when they show the mirror castle float a little later, it's got kind of like musical notes kind of glued up on it. So maybe it was the Disney hit parade was the parade, and then they put their little Spirit of America thing like up front because they don't do the right. song through the rest of the right. parade. Yeah. Yeah, we see the Walt Disney World band with Chip and Dale atop the ubiquitous steamboat float and their band regalia. And then the other floats, like Michael said, is it's kind of a, a middle parade. I don't remember. Um, we have Alice in a float that's a gazebo. We have Pinocchio with some marionettes. Always Pinocchio in these parades as well. Uh, Jungle Book characters on a float that is a rock outcropping with a shrine atop it. I really don't remember this. <laughs> I don't remember that at all. And we have uh, Davy Crockett and the Country Bears, which is a pretty interesting combo there. This knocked me down. A float with Davy <laughs> Crockett up top and then the Country Bears. I know. What, come on. That is a combo I've never... First, I've never seen Davy in a parade at all. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. And I've never seen that combo of characters. And, of course, they're like, oh, look out. Do they know what he does in his spare time? And, you know. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, you've got uh, the Mirror Castle float appears, uh, the uh, immortal Mirror Castle float, with, right. uh, Mick, with Mickey and the Gummy Bears. Oh, wow. Which I, I didn't even notice nice the gummies. Float. Wow, yeah. Yeah, the gummies were uh, were behind Mickey on there. And, uh, well, you could barely keep up because it moved at warp speed. Uh, yes, yes. Quick cuts. Quick cuts are really taking over. With the uh, Jungle Book unit, Mowgli was walking on his hands down the street, which I thought was interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Nice. So a lot, a lot going on. Uh, speaking of Davy Crockett, we are off now to the most exciting place on property, Pleasure Island. There, the band, the Kentucky Headhunters, 
will perform at the Neon Armadillo. And they give us quite the rendition of the ballad of Davy Crockett. So, yeah, a pleasure island where, quote, there are, where there are, quote, places to dance and a great comedy club. Oh, <laughs> so yes. true. Yeah. Um, this lead singer guy for the Kentucky Headhunters <laughs> first has a really awesome Fantasia t-shirt on, which that killed surprised me. me. That killed me. But in combo with his Confederate flag neck scarf. Yes. The only time I think that probably has ever happened in the universe, right? Fantasia (laughs) gear and Confederate garb on the same overlapping. And uh, he uh, really looks like Frank Zappa. And so that added a whole other level to my uh, entertainment (laughs) of, of all this. The crowd was very appreciative in their little party city 4th of July hats. That's right. Yeah, the Neon Armadillo was the first country club on the island. You were replaced by the BET Soundstage Club as the Wild Horse Saloon would replace the Fireworks Factory RIP in 1998. But the Wild Horse Saloon is where I saw Drew Carey on a night on the island getting wild. So really? You never know what you're going to see at the Wild Horse. But uh, it's dangerous. This, this, yes, indeed. This cracks me up. They're doing this kind of ZZ Top rendition of this song in the crowd. The crowd. This whole special is peak America's Funniest Time Videos, Michael. <laughs> it sure is. It sure is. America, this is you. It's uh-huh. just, That's all I kept thinking of whenever I would see the crowds. It's like, ah, oh, it's America's Funniest Time Videos. Oh. They trucked him in from the sticks for this one. Yeah. That's perfect description of who these people are. And very intense cheering and applause at all times. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, you know, by this time, the studios had opened, so they were really good at, you know, lathering people up to before the cameras rolled. That's kind of their <laughs> MO. The warm-up guy for the Kentucky Headhunters, I'm sure, was great. Oh, man. Did they really do the Ballad of Davy Crockett, or was it just for the special? I didn't. I didn't look that up. I no I idea. I want to no know. Idea. I just uh, thought it was pretty amazing that they went so hard on Davy Crockett in this yes, era. Yes, that's interesting, and I'm, I did not know that either. Unless it was to uh, tie into uh, the NBC, the uh, wonderful yes, Disney the uh, Rainbow in the Thunder. Maybe there was an intentional okay. tie in there. Could be, could be. We go back to Robert Guillaume. He says they've assigned a special cameraman to cover the events. Looks down at his paper, says, this can't be right. The Roger cam. (laughs) And yes, we have to have Roger Mm -hmm. Rabbit involved in what I presume was a rather late stage Roger appearance. I don't know when Roger stopped being in all the TV specials, but this had to be kind of towards the end of the cycle. I don't know. This was like in, because this is the year they would put him in the um, surprise parade as like That's the Grand true. Marshal That's of that. true. So it, this was not Still going quite strong. End. Yeah. We find Roger with, with the headset and the camera, as Michael <laughs> pointed out, at Typhoon Lagoon, uh, which I love Typhoon Lagoon footage anytime I can get mm. it, no matter what the circumstances are. Wow, this voice talent for Roger is something. It sure is. I don't think they got Charlie Fleischer to do this one. 
Which I'm surprised because you think they could, I mean, you think they'd have Charlie on lock. Yeah. Um, somehow, through some very quick circumstance, Roger accidentally falls down humunga cowabunga, the thrill slide at Typhoon Lagoon, and we're back at Robert <laughs> and Connie who say, I'm sure he'll get a hang of the technology. So a bit is forming here. Mm-hmm. The I camcorder bit. Uh, yeah. I hope Roger's camcorder is in the Disney archive somewhere. Because <laughs> it's the it's the yellow camcorder of the era, but a cartoon version. Right. Uh, now we're off to then President George Bush, who introduces the points of light concept, which we will return to from time to time in a very formal setting. He introduces the Sims family, the 500th daily point of light. Uh, the slow zoom out here is funny because you don't even realize they're there, and then they're just kind of <laughs> perched beside him. Yes, and standing very still. Yeah, and, and did they do this on film? It looks very nice. Very I, nice. Yeah, I don't know. Well, the, you know, the White House really uh, only the best videography going on. That's yes, right. it That's is right. very. Uh, yes, That's an very interesting well. tonal shift to go from like. <laughs> Roger Rabbit falling down a water slide to a very serious <laughs> George Bush monologue about how he's going to end drug abuse. Yes. Yeah. Um, this is super weird because I mean, the presidential appearance was always mandatory in this era, but they'd always stick on like Ronnie at the end to do a, like, we hope everyone is doing well sort of <laughs> right. thing. And then, but then this was like speech by George Bush. And then this like, Thank you, Alvin, uh, the guy, right. Alvin, Gwendolyn, and Brittany, for your efforts in doing this. Thank you, President Bush, for <laughs> right. your point of light. Thank you. <laughs> it's so weird. Well, George, you know, he he did the, they did a big points of light thing at uh, at Disney World at Epcot. He came mm-hmm. there to. Toward the land. It. Yeah. And the living seas, right? I think, I think so, yeah. Probably. Yeah. Back to Robert Guillaume. He's backstage at Videopolis. And man, they, they had them going all over Disneyland. Every time yeah. they're somewhere else. It's amazing. He's like backstage at Videopolis, like walking around. And he introduces Sheena Easton. And this is really funny to me. She doesn't look like she can move that much in that dress. So she's kind of <laughs> she like is. motioning <laughs> to echo the dancers. And I can just... Picture a young Tom Morris blowing off some steam in the crowd at Videopolis. <laughs> we need to ask him. He may have been there, Sheena. Yeah, she is packed in tight to that dress and just kind of tottering. Yeah, it's this very sedate kind of performance. <laughs> but this was another, uh, you know, I said some, it's like Connie Selica, I think of as an 80s person. I think of Sheena Easton as an 80s person, not a 1991 mm-hmm. person. This mm-hmm. was 10 years after For Your Eyes Only. I never equated her with the record scratching era, but there's right. record scratching going on. It's, yeah, I didn't either. I didn't either. And again, as is the way in this, we're just off to something else. So we go back to Connie. She's on the banks of the Rivers of America now. And she says that Disneyland and Walt Disney World are filled with the wonderful reminders of American history. And we have just a person to show us around. And she introduces Stephen Banks, who she describes as a, quote, unique new entertainer. (laughs) Oh, man. Let me me say before we go to Mr. Stephen Banks, um, the... 
the funny thing, like you said, this this special moves at a breakneck pace from one thing to another. But there are all these weird insert shots as they go from one thing to the next. And between right. to the between the concert and when we go to Connie Silica, there's footage of people like having like a big picnic in front of American Adventure on like yes. picnic tables, like eating yes. like barbecue on yes. like checkered uh tablecloths. It's really weird. But <laughs> yeah, then what uh, was this event? Yeah. I knew we were going to be in trouble when the opening credits to the episode is, was like, and the comedy stylings of Stephen yep. Banks. Yeah. Like, oh, no. Oh, no. If if that wasn't enough, the unique new entertainer is kind of the kiss of death. I mean. Yeah. Who is this guy? Uh, yeah. We cut to the rotunda of the American Adventure where Stephen Banks comes up. And starts talking about Abraham Lincoln and says, do you know he was one of the greatest entertainers of all time? And then we get the billy, billy, billy. And uh, we cut to the outside patio of the American Adventure, which I thought was a hilarious venue for this thing. It's just like (laughs) where the bathrooms are now. Right. Oh, and he's dressed as Abraham Lincoln finishing the Gettysburg Address. As he walks off stage, people start cheering, Abe, 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 Abe. And he comes back and starts doing stand-up. It's it's so wild. I mean, I, I think it's like Harry Anderson trying to do Steve Martin and then trying to do Andy <laughs> Kaufman. <laughs> Harry Anderson is Steve Martin as Andy Kaufman it's as like, Abraham Lincoln. It, there's so this is so weird. It, it, amplifying the weirdness is the fact that the crowd is all in like Civil War era clothing, yes. but they're all in like a like a grandstand kind of thing, and oh. like reacting as if like a comedy club crowd would react to it Abraham Lincoln. So weird. Yes, and he makes these jokes that are very Civil War specific. Like, he makes a joke about Grant with the punchline being that, like, Grant's, like, an alcoholic. Right. And, and makes a joke about Sherman setting things on fire because, you know, he, Atlanta and all that. It's very strange. He appeals to an intellectual crowd. He's a unique <laughs> new kind of entertainer. Clearly. Like, I don't this know. This is but smart comedy. He, yeah. He gets the banjo out, as Steve Martin, as I said, it, the crowd says, do battle him. And uh, he kind of takes on the Andy Kaufman Elvis affect and sings Battle Hymn of the Republic. And the crowd's like doing the little Sebastian hand wave to him. And uh, <laughs> it's like, so, at the end, they, there's like an announcement saying, Abe has left the building. Thank you and good night. Like, what is this guy? How did this happen? Where did they find this guy? <laughs> I, I just picture Eisner. Oh, this guy, he's clever. I saw him at a club in in New York, and he cracked me up. My the joke that I singled out in my notes was when my wife makes poached eggs, I make her go back and pay for them. <laughs> Why? It's amazing. Oh, so he kept back to Stephen out of character. He says he made all that stuff up. He was just trying to get his Elvis impression in. Did you know that Grover Cleveland was the father of modern mime? And he does the old camera person walking away. No, 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 wait, no, wait, no, wait. Come which back. Is, that's such a thing of the era. And uh, <laughs> we got back to Robert Kiyomu who says, 
Ah, it was Stephen Banks exercising his freedom of speech, which for some reason really <laughs> cracked me Guillaume couldn't have been amused by any of these shenanigans. No. You know who this guy reminds me of, kind of? And, and I picture this other individual off to the side shaking his head with disapproval. <laughs> he has a vaguely Fred Newman vibe. Yes, yes. Just I'd in say his somewhere between, yeah, Fred and uh, Harry Anderson. Oh, he was also... Uh, Shaking his head, I'm sure. But yeah, well, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, that's rough. That's yeah, rough. Was, but man, I didn't see that coming. I did not see that coming. <laughs> I no. did not see that coming. And very odd for the time, I feel like. Yes. It's not flashy in the way that the time was flashy. Right. Very strange. And maybe it's the Fred Newman thing. I picture it as being like a skit they would do on the new Mickey Mouse Club. Yes. Yes. Yeah, you're right. It is very Fred Newman. Very Fred Newman. Then we're back to a points of light profile. It's like the order they did this stuff in. Like heavy, light, heavy, light. We have a 91-year-old Julia Goldstein who started ACT, which was a tutoring program for first graders, which I think I remember. But I maybe really. I think so. I think, but I may be making that up. But all these I'm, points of life light really depress me because it's yes. like people doing good things, but it's in the like, light of <laughs> instead of funding schools better, let's right. send old people into schools to hang out it's with like, first graders. Exactly. Like, no, just they're like our schools are terrible and falling apart, and kids are falling. You don't through even the cracks. need good schools. So a, a, these old people. Yeah, a hundred year old person went to school to talk to this child. <laughs> Like, what else just do they fund have the to schools do? better? Right? Yeah, they don't have anything else better to do. Just fun, uh, just fund the schools, guys. Come on. Oh man! So back to light. We cut to a little big thunder with Connie riding in it. She says she's with a group of our great volunteer organizations, and they'll be spending most of their day surveying the Disneyland mountains. And thank goodness we won't have to ride this again. But whoops! There she goes again. Another mm. motif they use, which is accidentally getting sent on a ride, which is often used. The, yes, you say you want to go again. Okay. Oh, their way of working in the park footage, which I find str- the the mountain, the triple mountain whammy, or the quadruple mountain whammy, should I say? They at call, they refer to it as the Great Mountain Challenge. Oh man, which I like. But yeah, precursor to Triple Mountain Whammy. Clearly, <laughs> Disneyland already always had more mountain whammies. They than had what the, they have. had a fourth mountain. I, yeah. That threw me off when they said that. Speaking of your uh, American Adventure meal, we cut on some B roll to outside Frontierland, the kind of Frontierland promenade outside the uh, uh, Casa Mexicana, which is now the Rancho de Zocalo, where they have a whole spread laid out in Frontierland. Serving up Snow White and Seven Dwarves, serving up some vittles. The best part is Snow White serving baked beans outside <laughs> the Casa de Fritos. Oh, the former Casa de Fritos. Snow White, known for her baked beans. <laughs> yes. Maybe that's how she got into Wilderness Lodge. Could be. Now we're starting to connect some dots. They catch Robert eating some, uh, eating a plate. He's got to keep his strength up, he says. And he introduces Barbara Mandrell, who they've been plugging hard since the outset. And man, oh, yeah. Yeah. Barbara, she really brings it. She's outside the Golden Horseshoe yeah, with canned applause. Right there in the middle, her band is a collection of straight creepers of the period, man. 
Where did they get these guys? I don't know. They're all like mulleted and wearing like sheriff coats of some <laughs> variety. Like, what is this band? Um, one of them's got the guitar without a headstock, which I always like that little detail. It's just got the neck and it ends. It's... <laughs> yeah. Um, they all look like they would be highwaymen of some variety yes. in a Mark Davis drawing. <laughs> yes. Unsavory characters. Uh, and then the, you know, grumpies out there bopping in the other seven dwarfs. I don't know why they were summoned for this event. but uh, The seven dwarfs just kind of wandering around the crowd while Barbara <laughs> Mandrell sings in Frontierland in front of the shooting arcade. That's right. Uh, man, again, the crowd is so America's Funniest Time Videos. It's just mm-hmm. insane. Yeah. Okay, so moving on again. We cut back into in front of Sleeping Beauty's castle where a flag team is doing their routine with the White Rabbit, Gus from Cinderella, Winnie the Pooh, and Gadget dancing around them. And Kit Cloud Kicker. Oh, and Kit. I, was, I knew there was a fourth, but I couldn't see who it the was. The first ones uh, they show are the White Rabbit and Kit Cloud Kicker dancing together. I was like, <laughs> what is that pairing? I don't know. Uh, and it's kind of like the... Uh, yeah, as we, the pre-show to the Mickey Mouse review <laughs> kind of dance like the slow. Yes, it is. Uh, That's totally what it was. Yeah. Uh, thankfully, we are off to the newly opened Disney MGM Studios to see the newly formed group of Mouseketeers, the party. Michael, I mean, you remember the party? I remember uh, not too well. This was kind of after I had checked out from the new Mickey Mouse Club and uh, certainly not uninterested in the party. But although, of course, Disney MGM being the perfect venue for them. Uh, but Absolutely. yeah, I had not followed to this point because I didn't know that the upsetting ginger one wound up getting like super trashy. It's oh, like yeah, he's trying Chase. to be like trying to be George Michael and it's not working man yes yes they are singing Nick Lowe's classic what's so funny about peace love and understanding the backing track is oddly faithful to the original which I found <laughs> interesting it's like yes um, Chase yeah Chase is there like you said looking trashy he has his little leather jacket a lot of words on it like love danger killer Interesting, hmm. interesting mess, mixed messaging here. Uh, peace sign on it. Yeah. I I was a big fan of their coordinated peace, love, and understanding hand motions. Gotta have the hand motions. Yes. It's very uh, Zach it Attack. Was a, 
It was. It was like a weird combination of like kids wanting to be modern, like hip, cool, and then also like the Shirelles or something. Because right. they were like standing in a line doing coordinated hand motions. Yeah, they had a little American flag clothing for the for the, for some of them. Uh, Damon really threw me when he went pace, which he did a couple of times. <laughs> I had in my notes, quote, I'm talking about pace. Because <laughs> it was really, it was really stretching out that piece. Pace. Really, uh, really thought provoking. Uh, also, uh, Damon with the extended rap segment of what's so funny about peace, love and understanding, yes. which you, which you rarely hear that version of it. Kind of makes you think a little bit. Uh, also, a little little bit of lip syncing in here going on. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And Chase getting, like, mobbed by people. It's just... Uh, so Chase is so awkward. Chase is so uh, awkward. Dee Dee and her, like, uh, American flag, like, Oshkosh Bagosh jumper, whatever. And the other one, whose name I can't remember, but who looks kind of like Tina Fey. Yes. Oh, what was her name? Terry or something like that. It started with a T, I think. I don't remember. Can't remember. But I was like, oh, Tina Fey. Yeah, it does have a Tina Fey vibe. Oh, so the party, ladies and gentlemen. Little MGM Studios there for you. Again, I had in my notes, I can see why I started turning against live TV events in this period. <laughs> yes. We, we hated this I was this not stuff. there for this. Yeah. Hated this stuff. Uh, luckily, we are spirited back to Disneyland. You know, you got to keep going back and forth with the Celebrate USA Parade, Michael. And uh, But first, we have some marching bands. We have a float to dedicate the second annual Disneyland Pigskin Classic preseason mm. football game. In just a few short years from this, our interests would collide at this game. Um Happened 1990 through 1994 at Anaheim Stadium. Michael, the Tar Heels had a big game there in 1993. I remember it well. That, man, that was so exciting because, of course, I had heard about the Disneyland Pigskin Classic thanks to Disney News and shows like this. When the Tar Heels got to play in it, that was the the world's colliding in the biggest way possible. It really was. And they took it to USC that year, which was kind of a big deal. So A huge uh, deal. Yeah. There was forever, and, there was a picture of Mickey in the Hall of Honor at the uh, football <laughs> center uh, with a, yeah, congratulating the team. So that was very that was exciting, exciting for us. Yes. Yeah. Don't, don't get that crossover often. I uh, also realized this was about the point I started to realize we had totally bailed on the Disney World parade and never went back. Right. So I was like, okay, so we're, we're, that's not a thing we're going back to. We're, we're at Disneyland now. Uh, so, what do you think about this parade, Michael? How did, how did you find this parade? Oh, man. What <laughs> is this parade? I have no memory of this parade whatsoever. And usually, obviously, we weren't Disneyland people, so we would never have seen it in person. But you would hear about them in magazines and on TV and stuff. I don't remember this at all. And it is very distinctive. It's very distinctive. It's very, yeah. It's it's not like they're subbing out these floats for, for another parade. No. <laughs> no. I had in <sighs> my first thought upon the, the first float that comes through was, did Tim Burton or David Lynch design this parade? Yes. And because and there are elements didn't get of each the message of yes. their intent. Exactly. 
It is. Yeah. So it's a salute to life in America. Uh, first of all, the song, Living It Up in America, of, of the classic style, but mm-hmm. bizarre content. And yeah, we lead off with a float subtitled Suburbia USA, and it does feel like a Burton or Lynch piece. <laughs> There's a dancing postman. There is a neon-dressed kid dancing with a lawnmower. There's a guy with a pizza on the top of his head riding a scooter. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a woman in neon pink and blue spandex on an exercise bike eating chocolates from a box because, yeah. you know, uh, irony. Uh, there is so much going on, and it is so weird. The characters, uh, you know, the costume characters, we have like a, a two-person vacuum cleaner walk-around character. With a big face on it. Yeah. It's yeah, it's kind of like McDonald Land feel to some of this. <laughs> yes. Yes. Or like um Sid Marty Croft. Yes. Yeah, right. It's really weird. Like there was a dancing like uh feather duster and a dancing uh yes. two-part vacuum cleaner. Which I guess uh, in suburbia they're cleaning the house. This is where the quick, quick cuts really I mean I had to go back over and over oh, again yeah. to watch this because I'm like, what is happening here? This is the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. I kept, I kept pausing it. And every time I would go back, I would notice something new because yeah. there was so much and it was going by so fast. This has really taken a, you know, the brass ring from America on parade or Mickey mania, the bizarre, uh, maybe not Eureka, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is like the, the parade equivalent of, the Back to the Future glasses they had at Pizza Hut, the eye, <laughs> eye glasses, the sunglasses with the funky shapes. Yeah. This is the parade equivalent of that. We go from suburbia. We go to the Heartland Ranch with the dancing uh-huh. bull. There are these terrifying vegetables dancing yeah. uh, with faces on them that are like some from the 70s. That is super Sid and Marty Croft. The very first time I saw it, it's like, is that something from Kitchen Cabaret? And then I went back and I was like, oh, no. No, it's not. No. No. It's, it's, it's like pencil-thin mustache onion, yeah. man. It's, it's, <laughs> it's like, like John Waters, the onion. It's like the uh, yeah, kind of Sesame Street animation vibes from that time period. I don't <laughs> yeah. know. It's like the little dude on Saturday morning TV who would tell you how to make, like, juice popsicles with toothpicks or whatever yes that guy yeah um you also have old mcdonald ducks farm fresh eggs and produce which is so specific (laughs) yes and it's not a character parade so why is there suddenly this (laughs) oh no i don't know you get the the chicken in the barn float with an interesting (laughs) interesting little with cbd chicken in his loft this was i laughed so hard at this chicken um i mean i'll have to put a picture in the show notes i guess of what this chicken looks like but you've got the chicken then you've got like a smile darn you smile son right looking over his shoulder it's interesting then michael we go to metropolis usa where we have 
a uh, a riff on living in America, but working in America, working in America. And man, this is really something. This is the real highlight. This is, yeah, it is. I mean, I thought nothing could beat the suburbia float, but this first, I this is where I had to pause so much because <laughs> before we go to the float, there's like a two second cut of Scrooge McDuck <laughs> yes. driving an armored car with the white rabbit on the side of the armored car. <laughs> yeah, what's well, up with the white rabbit? I don't know. You've got Rebecca from Tailspin driving a monster truck. <laughs> Which happens in Metropolis. <laughs> yeah, yeah in, in the Metropolis. I guess she goes to uh, goes into the city. She has to drive her monster truck. Beagle Boy in a Corvette. And then they cut to, there are a bunch of like yuppies in suits with cell phones oh, all marching in sync. It's like uh, like the wall. Yes, yes. It's, it's like uh, the wall meets that 1984 Apple ad. Yes. Um, they're like marching in suits with cell phones while this working in living in America, working in America song plays. And on top of the stylized skyscrapers <laughs> is the big bad wolf, but it's got Metropolis on the front of the float in the font from the Fritz Lang movie right. from the 1920s. <laughs> which <laughs> which killed me. That is so bizarre. And then they cut away to like launch pad strutting down the street. Oh, like, yeah. what is happening? We have a uh, Monterey Jack as a construction worker. Uh, yeah. And we have like, yeah, we have the, the guys with the, like the big block cell phones. We have a group of ladies like picking up the phones and choreography as like the secretaries. Yeah. Like, and like, like sort of boss guys in suspenders, like walking around there. Uh, what about those coffee mugs? Yeah, you got the coffee mug walk around characters uh, with horrifying, horrifying faces, and the names Jack and Bob on them, which I figured had to be like Jack Lindquist, and I don't know Bob Allen. I don't know who was Bob Yanni still there. I don't know. I <laughs> could know. be, could be. I don't know, but this is when I realized that this was the beginning of California Adventure. This is a germ <laughs> that became. It would just grow. Maybe they just left this parade out in the parking lot overnight and it just got absorbed into the <laughs> earth and turned grow. into California Adventure. It's like it is same kind of yeah, it's like the same kind of sensibility of all the puns and like like real world commentary that is not should not be yeah. in Disneyland. Yeah, really facile commentary on modern life. Like, all it's missing is the man in, like, uh, Microsoft Word font saying Eureka. Right. And, uh, <laughs> but, yeah, this is, like, so Superstar Limo. All of yes. just the angular design of, the flat angular design of everything. Right. It's crazy. It is really bizarre. In the middle of it, there's just a bunch of Dalmatians and Cruella <laughs> promoting the re-release of 101 Dalmatians, which they try to like say is part of the parade. Which I mean, because I in America of- you've got to have dogs, right? right? So here's 101 Dalmatians, live Dalmatians, it's, real Dalmatians. Can you imagine trying to work that out? I don't know. At the end, you have a torch float with uh, former Olympians who go unnamed. 
this one is John Neighbor, who I don't know who he was, but I think he was a swimmer, according to that sign. Yeah, there were dancing yeah. baseball players. There were dancing people in sort of different athletic, uh, sort of sequined athletic uniforms going on too. Sports, living in America, living it up in America. Man, what to bring back that parade? So America consists of suburbs, ranch, and city metropolis. That's it. <laughs> oh boy, an egg farm, egg farm. <laughs> As if that wasn't enough, we now go on to a montage of younger folks quote making up for with imagination what they don't know for in accuracy. And boy, this is really painful to me. A painful mm-hmm. montage of kids mm-hmm. talking about incorrect things in history. It's a real damning indictment <laughs> of, <laughs> of a certain educational stylings. Yeah, this is, they're going for the kids say the darndest things uh, effect. But man, it's just kind of depressing and long instead. It is very long. Yeah, we start with like benign things like Christopher Columbus bringing over the pilgrims. Uh, young Andy Castro. Young Andy <laughs> Castro appears to say the pilgrims sailed with Columbus. Straight from Bakersfield, yes. Um, no TVs or anything. You had to make acorns for food and fish. Um, and then it starts to get a little darker. Uh Columbus discovered it and the Indians were there. That's probably it, is what somebody says. (laughs) Somebody else says, it was a quiet place where no one really did anything. Oh no, what can we know? (laughs) Then somebody says, we won our independence and there were no slaves and we were all free. No! (laughs) This got me so upset. Why? I love the girl with the completely flat affect who says they poured the tea into the lake or something. Yes. Yeah, she was. She, the she one about making acorns was good. But then you've got that one girl who is like, oh, the uh, War of Independence lasted five years. And uh, da, 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 da. it's like, well, you know, they wanted to just cut her out, like right. disproving our thesis. <laughs> yeah. Ay, ay, ay. Man, I tell you. We need to track down these kids. I wonder if these kids knew the kids from the walls for li- uh, living with the land. <laughs> they might have. I hope that some of them had some like 90-year-olds come and talk to them about <laughs> slavery and uh, genocide. Bakersfield Elementary needs to <laughs> teach us a little bit about uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, and then we got to Splash Mountain. Connie is in her Willard Scott raincoat and hat (laughs) doing her mountain challenge. And she starts to, this is another thing. This is another trip. The formal speech getting interrupted. Uh, She starts to give like a speech about the meaning of America. And then whoops, she goes down Chickapin Hill. So uh, yeah, that's, that's on the Disneyland 35th anniversary. And I think the Muppets at Disney world. It's like the, (laughs) the formal speech that gets interrupted. Uh huh. She said she's going to contemplate the meaning of Independence Day and then down the mountain. Quadruple mountain whammy. Barbara Mandrell is back. She says uh, most of her memories in her life involved the military. (laughs) Shit's so weird. Yeah. We have the greatest military in the whole world. You all agree with me, I know. People People are loving this Mandrell speech. She spent nine months in Nam. 
That's right. She's not in her in her father's band. Uh, yeah, this is a big plug for the military industrial complex from Barbara Mandrell. Uh, the whole the thing about her most important memories in her whole life having to do with the military was was quite a statement. It was dropped so casually. It's like, man, yeah. I was, think about that for a second. Uh, yeah, and then she plays another song. Kind of sounds like a. George Michael's Faith. So that's another George Michael reference mm-hmm. there. It's from her new record, you know. Of course. Hint, gotta hint. Got to play the new ones. And with that, mercifully, we have a commercial break. From a mile above Walt Disney World, the view is sensational for the second half of our show. Featuring the Kentucky Headhunters, CNC Music Factory, the stars of The Rocketeer, and a spectacular coast-to-coast 4th of July finale. Disney's Great American Celebration is sponsored by Ortega, the salsa that tastes so fresh and chunky, you'll never know it comes out of a jar. And Kellogg's, the best to you each morning. And Coca-Cola Classic, you can't beat the real thing. I was surprised there was no Lee Greenwood in this this whole, whole tapestry. I would argue that they just go around having Lee Greenwood later and just kind of do a cheaper version of Lee Greenwood. So yeah, <laughs> true, true. Uh, we get skydivers over Epcot as we go to commercial. Man, yeah. How about that? Yeah, that was exciting. Uh, some nice aerial footage from skydivers. Uh, so uh, we uh, find Tevin Campbell again being shot very strangely. I, I, it's it's a very odd little peekaboo he's playing yeah. uh, with uh, slow-mo inserts of dudes in 90s colors kind of jumping uh, in the air. Yeah. Kind of grown dudes though. They're, they seem much older than Tevin Campbell. Uh, yeah. Then we are realize he's in the Court of Angels, which which <laughs> makes me sad. Uh, and uh, there, there are dudes jumping up and down in slow-mo as we cut away. And then now we're all climbing in the rigging of the Columbia. This made me laugh so hard. Like the music video, the hip hop music video in New Orleans Square with him, like, you know, kind of hiding out and uh, then the cutaways. But yeah, the Court of Angels, like, man, this is going to be a cool place to shoot my next video. Let's climb (laughs) up on that pirate ship. Exactly. Just hang in the rigging. And uh, the insert shots of the grown dudes dancing are so incredible. It's like their parodies. They reminded me. Of the three-legged jeans ad from Saturday Night Live. Yes. Yes. That's exactly what it reminded me of. Uh, Also, are they wearing, like, overalls that hang down in the front? I was trying to figure out what those flaps are that they had. I think so, yeah. There's definitely overalls. I don't know if they had the one button down, the flap down. There was all kinds of different variants. And there's, like, a little flap in the front. Like, they, yeah. Uh, I just, this... This should not have been happening in the Court of Angels, although it ends in yet another pace. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was going to say, another great pace. <laughs> um, uh, we continue our mountain tour. Uh, Connie hits the Matterhorn. Robert says, well, you know, there's Connie at the Matterhorn. And they cut away to the coaster coming through the splashdown. And he's like, that was Connie at the Matterhorn. He's so cracking was, me up with these. They're just like so deadpan or frank. I don't know what which, but like it's just like 
<laughs> he's just like, next, let's do another one. I mean, they're they're not like cold, but that one is no. kind of really really. Funny. It is it is super matter of fact. Yes. Uh, you just wonder. Uh, yeah, it's it's kind of those readings that make you wonder, well, like what he was thinking. But uh, yes. So he segues from that. He's, Meanwhile, let's see what Roger Rabbit is up to at Walt Disney World in Florida. Oh no! And uh, Roger turns out he's back on the Roger cam. He's at the Honey I Shrunk the Kids playground <laughs> at the Disney MGM Studios. Uh, to explain, he asks a cast member, "Where am I?" And they explain, "You're at the Honey I Shrunk the Kids playground." Based Man, on that- Honey I Shrunk the Kids. That cast member was something. That's definitely a a partner in excellence for sure. (laughs) For sure. Uh, Roger looks around and is like, yeah, that's a big thing of grass. Yeah, that's a big spider web. (laughs) Yeah, that's a big whatever. That's a big hose. It's like, oh, there's there's like a paw print on the ground. There's the, the paw print of a big dog. A big dog! And then drops his camera and you see him running. Run away. So again, oh, that Roger. Again, uh, the voice, too. I mean, yes. Wow. A big dog. <laughs> I just couldn't, I couldn't believe the cast member explanation. I was like, what, I mean, what, I, what is this place? What I'm assuming, you know, she couldn't hear the Roger Rabbit voice. So it's like somebody like feeding her the line. It's just imagining <laughs> yeah. the behind the scenes. It's really funny. <laughs> So guess what? It's time for it's time for more Stephen Banks, uh, and his unique twist on American history. This time we're doing Thomas Jefferson. We get TJ up in his loft working on the Declaration, uh, as seen in the American Adventure. This is full of jokes that are on the verge of being funny, but just never quite get there. And there are jokes that are far from being funny. One um, got me. One got me. Yeah, well, uh, let me see if it's the one. Because <laughs> one got it's me. It's so ridiculous. All right. uh, so um, there's a lot of stuff. There's him just arbitrarily spitting tea on the document. Yeah. And the, the, kind of the joke is that it makes it look old. So then he's like, oh, that looks authentic. So he like burns it with a candle to it's like, like spit tea on and burn it with a candle to make it look like. A 10-year-old wrote this. I don't understand. Uh, And uh, the whole gag is the whole time, like, the people downstairs are, like, mad at him for taking so long. And some, like, hand keeps coming to the door and sticking in and, like, pointing a finger at him, being like, hurry up, Thomas Jefferson. We were ready for you. Uh, There are two kind of funny ones. it's kind of funny that there's one that may kill me. One was the people downstairs yelled, hurry or you won't be in the painting, which yes. I thought was kind of funny. Yes. But then uh, they're like uh, the the hand, the unseen person with the hand says something about Ben Franklin is this. And he goes on this riff about Ben Franklin. He's like early to bed and early to rise makes a man Ben Franklin. I don't, it's so stupid. He's just doing different things and then going, Ben Franklin. <laughs> but uh, it's early to bed and early rise makes a man Ben Franklin. <laughs> yeah. And then he grabs, what does he grab? It's like a like a turkey or something. It's like, yes. I'm, yeah. And has like Ben Franklin glasses on it and is making a, like a Ben know. Franklin it's like, puppet. It's, 
either like a turkey or like a potato. I don't know. It's it was really like car. Bizarre. It was like turkey draped over a potato, kind of. <laughs> yeah. uh, anyway, so what was yours? Uh, when he was trying to come up with the line. I mean, this is so bad, but it's so bizarre that they were like talking downstairs, and he's trying to figure out how to start it, and they're talking about that he's not going to get a booth. And they say, no, we hold these booths to sell venison. And he's like, oh, we hold these truths to be self-evident. So random. <laughs> like, how how did you come up with that idea for that joke? And how do you work backwards from, okay, they say something that sounds like we hold these truths to be self-evident. To be like, venison. That's good. Because he yells down, he's like, oh... Uh, save me a a booth for my right. dear dinner or something. Right. <laughs> They're like, don't worry. We hold these booths to sell venison. <laughs> so weird. Yeah, it's like the first part of it just uh, seems like, how do you even like, do, do you, is this like one of those 70s specials where it's like somebody riffing and it's like, yeah. What is this? And then there's those set pieces that are like, well, how actually did you come up with that? I mean, it's so bizarre. I'm going to laugh at it, but it's also not funny. Like, at the <laughs> same time, I don't understand. Oh, hey. early to bed and early to rise makes a man Ben Franklin. <laughs> oh, man. So, uh, we go from there to, again, a complete tonal breakneck shift to another point of light, this one helping troubled youths. Uh, this is <laughs> G. Van Standifer. The G stands for get them off the streets. Mm. He's got a program to get the kids off the streets. They're playing basketball at midnight. That's some great music. Doing crimes, yeah. Some nice um, sort of gauzy footage of sneakers lifting off the floor doing a jump shot. That's kind of romantic. Crime-free. Yeah, but but enough of that. Time for more entertainment. More entertainment. We've got Disney's This Is America at the Uncovered America Gardens Theater before they put the roof on, BTW. Mm Uh, this is military industrial complex shout out combined with film montage. Uh, this is, you know, in our last, uh, last year when we did the 88 parade, they had this really great montage of just like American moments. Yeah. Nobody's touching that montage. Nobody's touched. This is like weakest T imaginable compared to that. I mean, you got your Iwo Jima, you got your soldiers and sailors, very very weak stuff the guy doing the singing here i've seen before in yeah thing yes me too i could not figure out who this was but let me tell you this is the lee greenwood ripoff it's like yes it is let's find a song let's make another put plug a song into the computer that's god bless the usa abstracted and reformed it's like almost the exact same song yeah it is it really is. Uh, it's uh, synced to like military flyover footage of the Magic Kingdom. And it really is just totally out of that playbook. I mean, it's like elementary school pageant. America is awesome. 
silliness. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's... What is Disney's This Is America? I don't know. It must have just been a show they were doing at that point. They're in the American yeah. Artist Theater. Uh, but I can't imagine them doing this. This is a very serious, sober song. Yes. It's been kind of a downer for the crowd. You uh, again, though, this was like a time, you know, there's like a... Yeah, that's true. It's kind of like amped up around the Gulf War, maybe. I don't know. But... Yeah. I uh, hope I, I, I want to know who this guy is. He must have been a long timer. Uh, so maybe somebody out there can uh, identify him for us. Yeah. He, he seems like one of those guys who shows up and performs in these kind of things. But uh, no time for love, Dr. Jones. We're back to Pleasure Island for the Kentucky Headhunters again. Also, it's New Year's Eve at Pleasure Island. That's a hey. novelty. Right. It's always New Year's Eve. Uh, this is the first time ever that a TV special has celebrated Fourth of July and New Year's Eve at the same time. It's all new. Uh, they are performing Spirit in the Sky. Yeah. When, when they go they go back for the second Kentucky Headhunters, you begin to wonder why this special was so long. <laughs> it's like, yeah. We need two Kentucky Headhunter n- numbers here. Was Kentucky Headhunter Mania sweeping the nation at this point? Because I don't recall that. I don't either. And did they only do covers? I know, because they never, I can tell you a Kentucky Headhunter song, but I doubt in their genre they stuck to the ballad of Davy Crockett and Spirit in the Sky. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know why we needed uh, this song by these people in this special for the double dip, but... Uh, but we got it. Again, the crowd are loving it. But away we go. We're at Disneyland again. Got to finish that mountain saga with Connie. She's being dragged by kids to Space Mountain, and she's resisting. But then she can resist no longer because she runs into Bill Campbell and Jennifer Connelly. Hey. All right. And they're adorable. They are. I love how the crowd is chanting, Space Mountain, Space Mountain. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> the chanting yeah. crowd always always gets me. Trying to uh, urge Conley, I mean, uh, urge um, Connie Zelica in. Uh, yeah, Billy Campbell and Jennifer Conley there to promote the Rocketeer. They've got a clip. Uh, Connie's like going to introduce the clip, and Billy kind of one ups her and gets it in. We get the hyperspace transition from Star Wars for some reason yeah. to bring this clip into us. Uh, out from hyperspace comes a clip from the Rocketeer. It's the one where he's testing the testing the uh, backpack, and of it's course. the one they always showed for right. parades for always. some reason. He crashes into the pond and says, "I like it." Uh, get hyperspace transition back, and uh, then she's still trying to fob off Space Mountain, but Billy grabs her and says, "Aha! We're going on Space Mountain!" So away they go. And that's all. Sadly, that is all the Rocketeer content for this. I know. This if one. only there was more Rocketeer in this special. And less of what's next, which is from our new fall series, Home Improvement. It's Tim Allen. And here he yeah, is. Th- this is like the perfect encapsulation. This transition is is the time period we're in, you know? It's yes. like the 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 hinge. Of what is to come and what has been. If there was like some sort of view meter of 90s, 90s-ness, it would like literally redline and crack when this 
that <laughs> this little set of comedy. This oh. is like the ur text of all Tim Allen comedy. Yeah. <laughs> it is like how everyone was introduced to Tim Allen's stuff. And it uh, he starts off, like literally starts off, say it right off the bat, men are pigs. Like, yeah, oh, we're like good, the, we're good, yeah. good time. It's like in the beginning, Tim Allen explains the explains the wacky voice you know uh, <laughs> the grunting oh man yeah we get the uh, total introduction to the grunt which uh you know not not as often explained in the latter days but uh, uh here we get the full explanation caveman caveman do things this is like a parody of comedy from the era but it is um, he's got more power in there he loves more power he he doesn't get. He's not a famous enough yet to get the crowd to chant more power. But you, you know how men be. Uh, my favorite intro to a joke was: "Ever try to do woman's work?" Yes, that was yes. good. I wrote that down as well. I mean, I, I was heartened and yet saddened that the crowd wasn't that into it for most of the set. It's, it's like, true. well, at least they don't think it's funny, and yet he was somehow given such a platform. I oh, it's. What can you say? It's terrible. Michael Eisner hanging out at the comedy clubs. Yeah, yeah, he does the vacuuming jokes. Well, you know, he added more power to Grandma's vacuum, and that that did her in. Or no, not her vacuum, her uh, stair lift or whatever. Yeah. Old lady chair. Uh, He does put more power in the vacuum, too. uh, More power in the vacuum. That's what I thought. There was more power in the vacuum. Uh, He ends the set extremely abruptly. With, well, happy birthday, America. Thanks very much for being here. <laughs> it's really bad. Oh, man. This really makes me excited about the new TV show that's coming up. It seems like mm. it's going to be a great TV show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. This fall. Uh, we get a segment with Robert Guillaume doing a little transition. He's standing up on the Starjet platform in Tomorrowland. Iconic. This is a good shot. Iconic shot. Yes. I'd love to be up there. Uh, he introduces us to CNC Music Factory, who's on the Tomorrowland bandstand in the <laughs> footsteps of Bobby Rydell. This got me really excited, you know. It's a lot of things coming together. It made me want to do like a uh, quick cut uh, back and forth with CNC Music Factory and that band from Pirates versus uh, Pirates in the World <laughs> yes. of Tomorrow. Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. Uh, this was interesting to me, not... I mean, CNC Music Factory, a sound very emblematic of an era. Yes. I, I cannot admit to much knowledge of CNC Music Factory, but putting faces with voices, like the lady who always does whatever in the songs you hear on jock jams in right. the stadium before the game, it's like, hey, it's that lady. It's a lady voice. who was, yeah, I was very confused of why they had the backing tracks to some things. and some, So she was singing live over a backing track of herself, which was impressive because that seems like that would be one of the hardest things to do. He didn't appear to be like really rapping for most of the time over his backing track. It was just kind of doing it. and So confusing. Uh, but man, they uh lively. You got to say it was lively. Very lively. A lot packed onto that little stage. Yes. yes. They had like the, I don't know what whether it was their like uh, soundboard equipment or whatever it was, 
but with like the moving gears on the front of it. Right. So I guess that was the music, the titular music factory, it's which little, is kind of like the iceberg machine. I was going to say the iceberg machine, shades of the uh, 94 Tomorrowland 2 with the gears. Just really, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, we come a long way from Bobby Rydell and Annette, but, uh, you know, they, they do their thing. And then Roger's back, man, to take us to Mickey's Birthday Land. Got to get uh, in that plug for Mickey's Birthday Land. I'm sorry, Mickey's Starland, you mean? Mickey's Starland. Apologies. Yes. Very Apologies. different, very different experience yeah. was Mickey's Starland. Exactly. It starts off, he's filming a baby as these parents push a baby along the <laughs> sidewalk. And he's like leaning down in its face with the camera and says, he has his mother's eyes. <laughs> Uh, I wish they'd made a Rosemary's Baby reference and said that would have been incredible. That would have been I, it, better. I mean, it a uh, very dark part of the park. It's like super dark, and he's out yeah. there with a camcorder filming babies at this house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it is like middle of the night and filming babies in the dark uh, out front of Mickey's house. So he takes the camera. He's going to take us to Mickey's house, but nobody answers. And uh, he's like, well, it's okay. I'm friends with Mickey, so I'll just go in and film. So he's kind of filming around. Mickey's house, way more conventionally decorated than I remembered. Yes. Because it is not yet the Toontown, like the Disneyland Toontown marshmallow fluff and stuff effect of everything. It's like they decorated it with real furniture, (laughs) which is kind of weird. Uh. Interesting that his room is like just directly accessible by the foyer. Just his yeah. bedroom, it's just <laughs> his bedroom. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I remember like the tour of it when Birthdays Land opened. I wonder if they like toned it down for Starland and then ramped it way up, or just we don't remember because it got ramped so far up. But it, it is very know. like maybe it was because it was dark. I don't know. It's a weird because segment. When, weird segment to put in. Yeah. Well, when he goes in, I mean, it's like he's breaking and entering. When he goes in, right. I'm like, well, this isn't Mickey's house. I, I was like, they filmed this somewhere else. But then he pans back and you can see out through the door and you're like, no, this is. Definitely. I just yeah, didn't yeah. remember it because it is very conventional compared yes. to tunishness. Right. Uh, but my favorite line was he looks in the bedroom. And he's like, here's his bedroom with his little bed. I don't know why I thought that was really funny. His little bed. And uh, then he finds out his, he finds his like mouse of the year award and uh, like smashes it on the floor. And so he's kind of wrecking the house while Mickey's away. So then Mickey comes and lets himself in and we get less like, it's like Blair Witch Project camera work of Roger (laughs) hiding in the dark, hiding from Mickey. And so he's like, I got to get out of here. So he drops the camera again. And we see him running away. He runs out the back door. Mickey comes in. And he's like, what's all this doing here? Who messed up my house? What's this video camera? And then it cuts <laughs> off. Really weird. Yeah. Where's my award? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Just, yeah, odd. Odd choice. How are we going to promote Mickey Starland? We have to mention that because it's new. Oh, we'll just do a Roger Cam segment with it. Maybe he'll... <laughs> Is he going to go to Mickey's house? Well, maybe he'll break into it in the middle of the night yeah. and mess and, something and up. Trash some trash some stuff and then flee the scene. <laughs> and leave his cam. Mickey's my pal. <laughs> oh, yeah. So strange. Uh, now it's time. 
we jump right to Main Street Electrical Parade. They get in a plug for the Main Street Electrical Parade. Uh, and, you know, as I said, they barely care about the parades this year compared to how it was the last time we did one of these. Main Street Electrical Parade is like two minutes long of coverage, if that. Yeah. Uh, they just breeze right through it because they got to make time for more points of light. Well, yeah, but also I have to say that uh, it doesn't have its real music, which I found extremely offensive. And yes. I don't understand why. Why would it not have the real music? I don't know, because it always does when they do these kind of things. I, yeah. I don't know why. That licensing, man, ties you up in knots. Um, more Another point of light, it's kind of amazing, like I said, how many of these points of light are about private individuals doing things to help people that the government should be doing. Uh, this one is about the self-esteem built by employment. Uh-huh. Uh, a guy Iron. helping people get jobs and things which is great uh back to sheen easton at videopolis again they double dipped on every musical guest except cnc music factory yeah come on guys very i mean double sheena easton double uh barbara mandrell double kentucky headhunters weird i mean at this point i'm not afraid to say that that sheena kind of has a weird vibe <laughs> she's got a weird vibe going on right now she doesn't yeah. feel like she's really into this or something no. Or she can't breathe. I don't know. If in her, in <laughs> Probably it. She can't emote too much because she can't breathe. She's. Right. Uh, it's like uh, Gone with the Wind. She had to <laughs> grab the post and <laughs> get cinched know. into her outfit. Uh, so, you know, Sheena does her thing, uh, a, a song that I've never heard. But we go to the patriotic finale, which is a tribute to the American people. And, man, they are laying it on Thick. Oh uh, they, gosh, yes. There's a lady out there singing. She's serenading the points of light. We've got the points of light lined up along the back of the stage, like like the chorus or something. And they've got like banners for like whatever scout troop they're from or whatever. Uh, the lyrics to this song are mm, uh, sample lyric. Never ones to compromise, they strive to be the best. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what about uh, qualities that make someone a hero for today? Yeah, uh, the land that they love to honor and obey. Which yeah. <laughs> like, sounds like you're getting married to America. Uh, uh, silent cheering of the crowd lets them know that we are proud. <laughs> I miss that one. What does that even mean? I don't know. Why is it silent? <sighs> silent cheering. Man, the late '80s, early '90s patriotic anthem is—it's kind of a scourge. It's just rough, rough. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. This was like bargain basement Sandy Patty yes. doing her doing her business. Again, and, little, uh, little Sebastian vibes, a little bit. Yeah, very much little Sebastian vibes, especially with all the people in the background waving along and um, just the most inane, inane sentiment of. Yes. It's like somebody took a, like a bad middle schooler's poem and put right. it to music because it's not like lyrics, it's just words. You can win the competition and we'll make a song to put at the end of the grand American celebration. <laughs> right. 
uh, we get a wistful musical montage of the various points of light doing their things in uh, B-roll footage. Also footage, for some reason, footage of them getting baby Jessica out of oh, the well. Man. I died when baby Jessica I got brought in. so <laughs> hard. Because it's like, you know, the other footage is people we've met previously in the special. People right. doing volunteer work, people helping at the soup kitchen. Okay, here's a man with baby Jessica in the well. I couldn't. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. What a stupid time in history this was. This it was really just was. the dumbest. See America's funniest time videos revolution. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Where's baby Jessica at the end of America Adventure? That's what I want now. <laughs> and she, sh- I clearly should be in there. I don't know what she's up to these days, but as if this this spectacle was not enough, we get Guillaume back at Disneyland singing America the Beautiful at the Main Street train station. This about sent me into a coma. I could not believe it. I mean, he was killing it. He is like spot on going for it. Yeah. I couldn't believe and it. Belting it. Yes. And like and he's really singing it, and he is doing it. Like, hitting yeah, some high notes with some super velocity, no mistakes. I was stunned. Absolutely stunned. live. Yes. Oh, that's my yeah. Benson, man. Um, the choir with extremely dramatic backlighting. It's almost as if, like, because <laughs> they're standing up on the train platform, and they've got this backlighting coming up behind them that makes it look like the government guys from E.T. are like coming yes. over the hill behind them. Yes. It's or the just X-Files, up, like every spotlight. X-Files episode. Every um, X-Files episode. This is like both of the Coast to Coast is like a bizarro um, candlelight processional. It's like the mid, yes. mid-year candlelight processional. Uh, yeah. Totally. That is the vibe for sure. And then things just pop off at Epcot. Fireworks go off. We've got a military band playing. We've got characters dancing in the foreground while all the Illuminations barges shoot off their fireworks. Uh, and the military band plays. It's so out much happening at, at once. Uh, there's coordinated country bear dancing, like choreographed country bears yep. doing their thing. Um, there's a party at Pleasure Island. We cut away to Pleasure Island where there's, uh, like, New Year's Eve is exploding there. We cut to MGM where there's fireworks there behind the Chinese theater <laughs> where the surprise in the sky Mickey is shooting sparklers at his fingertip. <laughs> there's fireworks There's fireworks at Disneyland. There's fireworks everywhere. But my favorite part of this was when there, it's like fireworks, fireworks, fireworks fireworks and then it cuts to the face of an an asian man in a sailor suit playing piccolo oh, no. no oh no oh this poor guy this poor guy this prolonged shot of him that I, it almost looks like he's blue screened in but i don't think he is uh playing as piccolo and i don't know why that was super funny to me well, um, it was funny, and then it's painful because he was way up in the mix, and he is bombing compared to Robert <laughs> Guillaume. Like, and it goes on after, and it's just, it's bad. It's bad. I mean, yeah. I've never played a piccolo. I could never play a piccolo. 
but he's on national TV and it's, and it's rough. And they, it's like they've pointed him out and then he just starts flubbing all over the place. It's, uh, <laughs> it's painful. It's painful to watch. It really and is. I just wonder, you know, if this is the kind of thing that Walt would watch and be like, oh yeah, like let's go all over the place and do all the fireworks at the end. Like maybe, maybe not a lot of this, but the, but the fireworks part and the multi-location yeah. fireworks, I feel like Walt would have been like, oh yeah, this is, this is great. This is what I'm talking yeah. about. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is like literally they went to the control board and pushed every button for everything <laughs> at the same time. Like, I mean, the, the opening was not enough. The opening no. was not ridiculous enough. Let's do everything. Because you've got like all those illuminations barges going, but then they've got like right behind the stage, those like sort of pinwheel firework things yep. that spin around. Old school, old school. And those. so they are spraying <laughs> all over the place. Right. But then when they cut to cut to Pleasure Island, when they cut to MGM, when they had Mickey up there inflated, sparking. And then Disneyland, it was wild. And then the cuts to like the characters cavorting, uh, again, I don't know why the country bears are so prominent in this show at Epcot. Roger is in the middle of it all, of course. Uh, but then you <laughs> you got Pluto. Did you see what Pluto was wearing? I did not see Pluto's outfit. No. Pluto, they get a good shot of Pluto in there. Pluto is in sort of star-spangled shorts. Uh, hmm. With suspenders, but no shirt. So he's kind of like leather bar Pluto uh, dancing around. Uh, <laughs> it is, it's really something else. And then it's over just like that. The end. Oh, my favorite part of the finale, or one of my favorite parts, is before it even starts, Connie says, quote, We've done a lot of things here tonight, which I feel like. <laughs> Make Walt proud, Connie, with the things. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I noticed in the credits, uh, you mentioned a lot of the important individuals. The special was co-written, and the presidential comedy bits were co-written by a gentleman named Bill Prady, who is co-creator of The Big Bang Theory. Interesting. Wow. Also wrote Muppet Vision 3D. And Honey, I Shrunk the Audience. Oh, wow. And developed the short-lived Muppet revival from a few years ago on ABC. Whoa. Interesting. Yeah. So that is a thing. A nexus of talent from so many decades. All, the, all those things involved in We Hold These Booths to Sell Venison. Oh. That's it, man. That is that is the thing. Uh, had you seen this before? I had not seen this before, unless I saw it at the time. But but I have no memory of it. Had you had you seen it before? No, I had seen uh, the you know the principals involved and thought well, this will be this will be interesting to talk about. But uh, I had never seen it before. Mm -hmm. oh. I had no memory whatsoever of any of this. Yeah. But boy, it it it's a whole lot. It's a heap and helping of stuff. It is, it is great. It is a great celebration, to be sure. It made me kind of sad, uh, especially coming from Mark Summers to this. Oh. I know, and now they don't even do it anymore. So it's just like to nothing.
So that wraps up our 4th of July, our second annual 4th of July special, Michael. How does it feel to, uh, to make your way around the lap fully? Very good. I got to tell you, I was all, my fear always when it came to the podcast was, would we be able to think of enough stuff to talk about that people would be interested in? Could we uncover enough stuff that wouldn't just be repeating what everybody else has said on their podcast? And so I had a lot of anxiety. I was a little gun shy about the whole thing. But we have had, uh, if anything, more content than we had expected, more stuff than we That's expected. Right. So I feel very relieved, very pleased, and uh, you know, glad we. I'm glad we did it. Yeah, my concern was, could we consistently do one podcast a month? So we've done better than that too. So, yeah, yeah, hooray for us! We get the exactly. uh, Sam the Eagle Award for this year. We'll see if we can keep it up. Not boast too much for next year, but. Uh, Like I said, please, please leave us a review. If you've enjoyed this year, leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. We would really appreciate it. Um, And subscribe and all those things that they say. But Michael, another way to contribute is through our Patreon. And has uh, someone contributed newly through our Patreon this month? Yes, we have a new member of the society over on Patreon. Uh, We'd like to welcome Joshua. Thank you so much, Joshua, for joining in and backing us and helping us do uh, what we do uh, as uh, right, actually, a little behind-the-scenes info, or right before this episode, uh, we took some steps to add some much-needed research resources and... uh, we're really excited about that. Uh, we'll, we'll be able to dig in for future episodes. And, uh, you know, little things like that, things like podcast hosting, they kind of add up. So uh, your help really helps us out. Uh, Patreon.com slash Progress City USA. Also, you know, at the $10 level, you can join us for our monthly live stream, which have been really fun so far. Everybody joins in and we have a chat and then we have a little video stream uh some images, rare images, some video, just of uh, things relating to our topic for that month. So that's been really fun to catch up with everybody every month and just a nice little community and we have a little chat. So we really, really appreciate everybody who's joined in. And so thanks, Joshua. We we appreciate it and uh, welcome. That's right. And speaking of rare images, as Michael mentioned earlier, uh, the Instagram account is up and running at Progress City USA check out what's going on there uh obviously twitter at progress city usa is michael's uh username and mine is at jeff g crawford Uh, we are available for commentary you can email us at podcast at progresscityusa.com with any memories or story ideas or uh, feedback of any kind we welcome now Next month, Michael, we we get the month off. We get the, the little summer vacation, don't we? Well, there's no rest for the weary, and uh, we are going to be working. But yes, uh, we're going to... The plan is, folks, we're going to take the month off. Uh, no new broadcasts, but uh, we're going to use that time to get ahead of things because we have... Uh, let's just say we started last year with what we had in the can, which was one episode. 
And so poor Jeff, our producer, our mighty producer, has really been behind the eight ball this whole year. Uh, so we're going to try and get some things uh, on on tape, as the kids say, and uh, get ahead get ahead of schedule. Uh, our Patreon people, you know, will will keep you updated as as you know quickly as things are rolling out. You'll get your early access as usual. Um, but everybody else, you know, we'll be back in September, fresh, rested, tanned, and relaxed, and ready to go, right? That's right. And I may add, we hope to have an interview to break our interview seal yet again uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, this is not confirmed, so I can't announce it yet, but stay tuned to this feed, because I think we're going to have something for you that you're going to want to hear. And we may have a special live stream in August Again, stay tuned to all these communication channels to hear uh, any announcement relevant to this, but it's a little bit nebulous yet. So yeah. exciting things coming soon. With, uh, the with potentials for great excitement. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, we thank you all for making it through another year with us. We appreciate you uh, listening in. For all of you who have started, uh, thank you for listening. We look forward to seeing you in, hopefully, in a few weeks. If not, we'll see you in September, as they say. Thanks for <laughs> listening. Take care, and we'll see you soon. It's time to go. Remember, everything you've seen here in our all-electric city is really possible today. So if you know any cities looking for a new springtime of progress, tell them about Progress City. Thanks, Thanks for, for joining, joining us. They call it progress. Progress. Our time is Listening to the Progress City Radio Hour, created by the folks at ProgressCityUSA.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Progress City USA. If you want to contact us, please write podcast at ProgressCityUSA.com. The Progress City Radio Hour is recorded at Arbor Ridge Studios in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, on the web at ArborRidgeStudios.com. The title theme was composed by Jeff Crawford, whose music can be found at jeffcrawfordmusic.com. Please join us again soon for another Progress City Radio Hour. They call it Progress.